Welcome to episode 46 of the Film 89 podcast. It's been a while now since you heard my voice, but I can assure you, I'm still Sky. I'm still one of the founders and editors of Film89.co.uk, and unfortunately, I'm still in lockdown. But also in lockdown is a man who would usually be sat next to me at Film 89 Towers tonight. But as he's currently in isolation, I'm going to have to converse with him via Skype. That man is my fellow Film 89 compatriot, Mr. Steve Amos. Steve, how are you coping during these very strange times, my friend? Cabin fever. Oh, tell me about it. I, I, I can look out my window, I can go into my garden, and that's about it. I've been told I'm not allowed to go anywhere else. Oh, it's just... I, I've, I've had enough now. I've just had enough. I want things to get back to normal. Um, you know, I, I know that we're not seeing much of an improvement with regards to, you know, the amount of cases and the mortality rate is is not coming down yet. But, you know, from a personal point of view, I've just had enough now. <laughs> yeah, well, I've got another, oh, is it uh, eight weeks left, I oh, think? Oh, God. Oh, dear. Yes, at least. Oh. <laughs> <sighs> And joining us tonight also via Skype is someone who we've wanted to get on the podcast for quite a while now. Not only is he one of our most ardent followers, but he's also a successful podcaster in his own right, being the co-host of the Pop Culture Gamers podcast. It is going to potentially cause some confusion because he's also called Steve. It is, of course, Mr. Stephen Simpson. Stephen, welcome finally to Film 89. Thank you very much. It seems like it's taken about a year to do this. Yeah, I think it was... Just after your first appearance on Wrong Wheel, wasn't it? When you did mm. you do uh, your favourite uh, film composers? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and, yeah. and since then I've done another about another four, I think. Yeah, and then you know we we got talking, and, and you said, look, you know, you'd love to come on film eighty nine, and we were sort of bandying about potential topics, and the one that's just always stuck that we always said we would definitely do is tonight's topic, which of course is just a huge look or a or more more accurately a listen to the career of the late great. Jerry Goldsmith, one of the most prolific and revered film and television score composers of, of them all, really. But Stephen, before we um, sort of take a, a big dive into the career of Jerry Goldsmith, just tell us about your podcast and, and well, more fittingly, about your love of, of film scores and that huge vinyl collection that you've got. Yeah, so I'm trying to work out how long I've been doing it, but I think I've been podcasting for about eight years now. So Wow, old been- school. I think it's a bit, isn't it? So we, I've been, I, would, I joined one podcast, then migrated to one which is now Pop Culture Gamers. Here we're now in season two, and we got on board Alan as well as Hayden as well. So it makes it easier for if I need to do any sort of moonlighting, should we say? So this, this, the show can always keep going from that point of view. I can, I can do and do other bits on the side as well, and it, it works pretty well to be honest. So before sometimes family life can get in the way, as you're well aware. So sometimes you don't want to sort of drop a, a show and miss a week or two due, due to whatever's going on in your real in the real world. So, but it works. That's, that's the main thing now. And, and tell us about your, um, your your love of film scores and and how you got into. It's funny because back in the early seventies, which probably some of you won't remember, <laughs> I think I saw Live and Let Die, and as soon as I saw that, I I got my dad to buy me that for Christmas, and it sort of built it from there because. In those days, you saw a film and it would disappear until probably it come onto ITV, you know, sort of later on in the in the late 70s, early 80s, maybe. But these days where you can enjoy a film and you can watch it as many times as you want, then you couldn't. So for me, the love of the music would be like replaying the movie in my head. And I've built on that since the early 70s. I did lose some vinyl in a move at once, but luckily enough, the ones that went weren't the movie scores. 
so my collection's been building and building and it's been going from there really <clears throat> i think I, when i started going into london to watch the, the big movies of the 80s over at leicester square and places like that i found a record store in duke street which is just off of leicester square no sorry piccadilly circus and if i went to see like for example i went to see the thing i'd pop into that store they'd have it in stock already I'd whoa, take whoa, whoa sorry steve back up a sec you you saw the thing in the cinema yeah oh wow <laughs> <laughs> that must have been an experience it was it was and it was one i came out enjoying not poo-pooing like some did at the time do you know what i mean yeah it, yeah it was obviously yeah it was a big flop wasn't it yeah it got a lot of slack um for it but i all the films that, that you say you would love in the 80s all of those i did see on the big screen and also some in the 70s as well as well as star wars and jaws which obviously you you guys have been um, lucky to witness last year yeah, finally, yeah. But, God, you, you were there to see Jaws back in 75. Wow. Yeah, I was. And my mum sort of jumped out of the chair many times. I won't forget that when the when um, Gardner's head comes out of the boat. She was petrified. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> it, was, it was great to see that, I must admit. So you've always then been a, a big fan of film scores and film composers? Yes. Oh, many. And... It's funny now where the the vinyl's got the revival it has at the moment. And with the remastering of original tapes, the vinyl now going up to 180 gram in weight, which obviously improves the sound. Yeah. And even some albums like Jaws, which has now had a, an expanded edition from the, my original copy, that plays at 45 compared to 33. And that also makes a lot of difference in the way they've recorded it. So it's, it's great. And, and obviously, as you, you well know, that Amazon or Spotify, you can get a lot of it on there. And for me, where I use a lot of sites around the world to get the vinyl to my front door, it's just so easy to do. Yeah. Where, you know, whether it's going to be Mondo, Waxworks, La La, Rec- La La Lamb Records, or even my mate Ian over at Silo Wave um, in Newcastle, it's uh, so easy now. Put a pin in that one, actually, because we'll come back to that later. <clears throat> yes. So obviously on your, um, I think it was your first appearance on Wrong Reel when you were talking about film composers. The mm. one we're going to be talking about tonight featured quite prominently. Absolutely, yeah. I can, I'm trying to remember what I actually my top five was, but there was two there that I think I did mention for sure that uh, we'll talk about. So then moving on to Gerald King Goldsmith, born February 10th, 1929. Tell us, Steve, about your um, your sort of love of this composer and and what you know about his his early career. So he, at the age of six, he started experimenting with the piano, and that moved on to the age of thirteen. And he went to see Hitchcock's Spellbound, and after seeing that, he sort of thought to himself, "Right, there's two things I want to do. I want to be a movie composer and marry Ingrid Bergman." <laughs> So, but we know half of that come true, yeah? <laughs> yeah. So while at 13, he started taking piano lessons with the Polish pianist um, Jacob Gimbel. Um, in 19, I was thinking 1945, Goldsmith started his um, lessons with the Italian composer Mario, and I can't really say this very well, but I'm going to say his, his surname was Teskisado, uh, which I think obviously he did the uh, the uh, Hitchcock's Spellbound score. So uh, from there on, he was, he was working with uh, John Williams, Andre Previn, all in this musical education at South California. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I just I do apologise, it was Mick, uh, Mikko Rossa that did the score for Sale Bounce. Yeah, yeah. And from there, Goldsmith and uh, director Frank J. Schnaffner met at USC, where he was learning his career at that point, and had the calibration, which obviously for then, at that point, looking him forward, he had obviously started with the stripper with, with Schaffner, moving on to some great scores like Planet of the Apes, Papillon, 
boys from Brazil and obviously Patton. Golf athletic studies is at um, LA City College where he also worked as an assistant conductor. So at that point, he was doing pretty well, I think, for what was what was coming up in his career. But I think the big break came when he was a typist at CBS Network. Mm-hmm. There he was music director, uh, working with Lud Guskin. From there, he started to write some scores for the radio shows, such as uh, Radio Workshop, Romance, was it The Frontier Gentleman? And moving on from there, he was using doing scores for Twilight Zone, Playhouse 90, Climax. And some of those were actually live recordings he had to do with the actors doing their sort of the plays they were doing. So I can't imagine how that must have worked. It was a, probably something that he learned off the cuff as he was going. From there onwards, some other TV shows that I think I remember very well, two of them at least, there's Dr. Kildare, Man from Uncle and Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. So I think he's he had some career that a lot of people would never get in that, in that sort of stage of, of his young life, building up to uh, the early 60s. Because obviously from there, from there on, there was stuff like um, Von Ryan's Express, Armand Flint, the Blue Max, Sam Pebbles, and the rest is history, I think, from there, didn't you think? Yeah, yeah, I think, you know, he obviously he cut his teeth doing live television as a composer, mm. which, you know, that I can't even get my head around how that, you know, would have been done at the time and how it works. It's just something that's completely removed now from how we know uh, television to be created. Obviously, everything is done in post these days. And, you know, live television, you know, apart from, you know, the odd reality show and things like that is pretty much, you know, a thing of the past. But I think his first, I think his first big theatrical score, wasn't it? Uh, Lonely Other Brave, which was uh, a Kirk Douglas film, 1962. Yeah, that's right. Well, be- before we go on to sort of looking at his sort of individual scores, uh, Steve, obviously you and I, you know, during our friendship and over the last few years, we've discussed film scores at considerable length. Um, you know, how does Jerry Goldsmith sort of you know place for you in the in the sort of pantheon of of great film score composers? Uh, he know, he's one of the greats, isn't he? Um, I've been listening to Jerry Goldsmith ever since I started look you know into films in the early eighties. His scores have been something that have kept me company through all everywhere they he's always been with me and forgot the fact that I like um, Joe Dante so much of course you can't <clears> love <throat> Joe Dante without Jerry Goldsmith because the two of them go hand in hand I also use him a lot when I'm writing because uh, I like to, I often put music on when I'm writing because you know there's kids here there's TV on I'm in the same room whether I'm writing something fun or if I'm writing something scary Jerry Goldsmith is one of the go-to composers for me so even from the the very early days in the early eighties right up to now, he's, he's he's a constant in my life. It's funny, isn't it? How some people have like the are different ways of, of writing. Because for me, if I'm writing anything, it's just got to be complete silence, and my concentration just has to be on you know the words that I'm typing. I can't have any sort of distractions. But then I know other people who like to have the television on, or who like to be you know take their laptop out and go into a you know a cafe or a restaurant or a, or a <sighs> coffee shop and just do it that way. But too much distraction. Yeah, it's it's got to be no distractions, just silence. But well, for me, it is actually a way of getting rid of the distraction because you know there's only one room we've got. You know, um, in the living room, I haven't got anywhere else. I can't go in the kitchen or anything to to type. So I sit on the dining table. I put music on to you know, so I can't hear the TV. I can't hear the kids running around, and I turn the volume up loud, and I just disappear into the world. Then whatever I'm writing. So when did you both? Um, starting with you, Stephen, be- become aware uh, of, of Jerry Goldsmith as a film score composer. I would say probably the first time with, which probably be the probably been Planet of the Apes for me because I'm in such in love with that 
that film and how, how all those five movies, even though he only scored two of them, how all that comes together as 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 a cinema treat to to see. Everything about it was a first, whether it's to do with what Jerry got involved with, with the percussion and how he put the score together, or whether it's the, uh, the, the special effects with um, the, the, the latex they used and everything else. It's just, oh, everything about that movie for me is just, it's just, there's nothing wrong with it in any shape or form. It is a perfect film. Yeah. Steve, what about you? I think it's difficult to, you know, pinpoint it because uh, <clears throat> by the time I started into films, like I say, in the early 80s, He'd been around for a long time and he'd scored a lot of movies. But I think the one that probably stands out, because I saw it when I was very young, probably too young, and because it's so different, is probably The Omen. Uh, because that's such a different score to anything else that you know that you would normally hear. So the, the voices, the mm. uh, Ava Santani. <clears throat> it's something that, you know, from a very early age, I would be aware that that one uh, was different and that it was this music on this film and it was having such a great effect on me. Yeah, I think with me and Goldsmith, when I first became aware of him, probably was around about maybe the probably the early nineties, and I would imagine that my sort of gateway into knowing you know of him as a film score composer was probably one of his Star Trek scores, or, or when I began to sort of remember that you know seeing his name coming up on screen, and probably one of the ones which kind of first got my attention was probably a score for Star Trek Five, um, mm-hmm. which. Whilst I'm not going to say it's one of the scores I've gone back to to you know to listen to you know repeatedly. In fact, I don't ever think I've listened to the score in isolation at all. It was at that point in my life when I was really getting into Star Trek where I realised that Jerry Goldsmith was probably one of the most prolific composers, certainly for you know throughout all the Star Trek films. And I think mm. it was at that point I began to realise you know and, and around about that time, eighty nine ninety is when a lot of my sort of favorite jerry goldsmith scores were done so yeah i think it was around about then i actually became aware of him as a as a, as a film composer would there be a few surprises though sometimes where you'd see a film and just wouldn't realize it yeah now that's the thing with goldsmith now i think you and i steve when we first talked about doing this episode we were talking mm. about john williams and and other composers that we could do you know the thing with goldsmith is I don't think he gets the kudos that the likes of John Williams and other composers like Bernard Herrmann and, you know, even going far back as ones like Miklos Rosa, who obviously was the one that first got Goldsmith's attention. Hmm. I think undoubtedly he is, if you look at his body of work, he is one of the most prolific film composers. But yeah, he's he's not got the same sort of amount of scores, which like... Look at John Williams. You've got, you know, E.T., Star Wars, Indiana Jones, Superman. They're scores which are just sort of ingrained into the public consciousness. Whereas Mm. I don't think Jerry Goldsmith has got that same sort of status, but I don't think in any way he's any less a composer than any of the great names that you could mention. If I was to to quote a line from Captain Kirk and say, if I may be so bold, I would say he's probably maybe better than John Williams, to be honest. It's difficult to come up and put these two in, in a different barrel. Right. The, the way I've been thinking about it is in terms of when I think of my, my favourite film scores, you've got ones which stand out from certain composers. Like for me, you've got Jaws, The Empire Strikes Back, Taxi Driver, The Lord of the Rings. There's definitely any number of, of John Williams scores, which I, I, I would argue, yeah, you could say that is the greatest film score. Um, mm. You know, Howard Shaw scores for the Lord of the Rings trilogy, probably the film scores I've listened to the most, to just blow me away. They're just 
you know, I think when we did um, favorite film scores, I, I'm pretty sure they were my number one pick. But then you've got, you know, the likes of Bernard Herrmann, uh, you know, the, the work he did with Hitchcock, which was just, oh, mate. oh my God. Where, where do you start with, with, with Bernard Herrmann? But then his score for Taxi Driver, every time I listen to it, I think that is up there. That is one of the greatest film scores. Then you've got other artists, which I'm not really that keen on, like Van Gallis, but their mm. score for Blade Runner. It's up there. It, yeah, it's up there. And every time I listen to that, I think, no, that's the greatest film score. So, so what about if I was to pluck out James Horner, for example, who I do love? Right, where would now, you put him? James Horner, you look at his, his scores for Aliens, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. It's only when you sit down and listen to them and you realise how good they are. But, you know, you, you say John Williams, straight away people think Star Wars, Jaws, E.T., mm. Indiana Jones, Superman, all the classics. Bernard Herrmann, you think of his stuff with Hitchcock. With James Horner, I... I think, unfortunately, a lot of people would probably think, you know, a lot of younger cinephiles might say, oh, he's the guy that did the music for Titanic. You're probably right there, yeah. He's associated with his work with James Cameron. There are a lot of great composers who, I think we've had a conversation recently, like what happened to Brad Fidel, who did the score for the first two Terminator films? Yeah. Two of the greatest film scores I've ever heard. And I think another one that I think maybe does get a lot more kudos, maybe than, certainly than the likes of... um, James Horner, is Alan Silvestri. I was about to just bring him up, but yeah, you're right, yeah. One of the things with Goldsmith is he is a chameleon. He can turn his hand to any type of film, horror, thriller, comedy, you know, action film. It's only since in the last couple of weeks where I've just been binging heavily on Jerry Goldsmith that I've finally realised that there are certain little things that signpost a Jerry Goldsmith score. Whereas someone like Alan Silvestri, uh, you know, I, I don't want to sort of say that this is anything negative about him, but sometimes you listen to an Alan Silvestri score, and whether intentionally or otherwise, there are little similarities which are just key between certain film scores. There's moments in his score for Predator which almost look as if they've been wholesale repeated again. Then in his score for Back to the Future Two, mm, yeah, they, you know, they, there's just these you know incredible similarities. <clears throat> Maybe that's intentional. Uh, maybe it's just the fact that you know he's got a, you know, a, a clear style. But yeah. you know, I think again, some of Alan Silvestri's scores, I will, I will say, hand on heart, are some of the best film scores I've ever heard. Is he up there with Jerry Goldsmith? I don't know. It, I'd say probably not because Jerry Goldsmith's career is in total. I think he did about a hundred and one hundred and twenty-five film scores, two hundred and fifty-five scores in total, including you know, television and various other sort of mediums that he's recorded music for. When you look at his breadth of work, it's absolutely staggering. And as we'll come to later, trying to pick out five favourites from that is just an almost impossible task. Oh, God, yeah. I mean, it's funny, just just if you're going to go back to Alan Silvestri briefly, I picked up the score for Who Framed Roger Rabbit, and that is completely different. Now, I, I haven't seen the film in, in an age, but where you've got stuff like Chinatown with Jerry and... There's even some games I played which are down this route with this sort of uh, genre. Silvestri's score with that, he's got the horns, he's got that style that fits that that sort of genre with it, which is completely different to everything else he's done. Whether whether you say you're talking about the all, say all the science fiction stuff he's done, or even to the later stuff he's done with the Avengers and where he's been involved in as well. Difficult. Yeah, Steve, what, you know, where, where do you think he stands? Goldsmith, for me, I think that he is in my top three composers of all time. 
going back to what you said about why he's perhaps not as well known as maybe John Williams, for example, I think sometimes it's a bit of luck because often we listen to the soundtracks of the films which we like the most. And of course, Williams lucked out with Star Wars and his association with Steven Spielberg and then Harry Potter. So, and um, to Bernard Herrmann, of course, Hitchcock, as you said, we associate these names together with, uh, we don't normally do that with Goldsmith, or at least not in the the general public, too, because some of the films that he did work with, for example, Joe, um, Joe Dante, he's not a huge name outside of, you know, cinephiles. Yeah. And it's the same with uh, the director of Planet of the Apes, uh, Schaffner. Mm. I mean, he, did, he did seven films for him. Mm. But of course, that's not a name which most people would ever have heard of. For me, I, mean, I know you said you didn't like uh, Vangelis, my favorite. No, I, um, well, I'm, I'm not saying I like. I didn't. I don't like Van Gallis, but Blade Runner is the only Van Gallis score that yeah. I know. I know you're going to say. Uh, let me think. What's the Van Gallis score that? Like Chariots of Fire. No, no, no. no it's no, not no. that. Steve, there's a there's a Van Gallis score that Steve loves. Oh, it's oh, gone. Should I put you out of your misery? It's 1492. That's what it is. Yes. Oh God, it is. yeah. yeah. Oh, I I absolutely adore that um, soundtrack and I can listen to it any time of the day and I don't have to have an association with the film sometimes for it to be a great soundtrack and you know we'll we'll discuss this a bit later with um, Goldsmith because there's a few Goldsmith soundtracks I've heard especially the last you know two three weeks in preparation for this Mm. where I'm thinking this is fantastic I haven't seen this film for 30 (laughs) years but this is fantastic um, uh, but with um, Van Gaelis, of course, 1492, the film is abysmal, but I do love that score. <laughs> so then, guys, let's um, let's start at the beginning. Um, I, I think if we include his television work as well, we're just going to be here for like four or five hours. But starting with Jerry Goldsmith's theatrical film scores, from your point of view, guys, what's, your, what, what's, what's the earliest ones that you're aware of and that you've listened to? Well, this is going to be sort of a, a kicker for later, but the Freud score, actually, which I... I have not listened to properly, but obviously for this, I did. Hmm. God, I loved it. <laughs> yeah, because this is the one that was used as a temp score for Alien. Exactly, yeah, yeah. yeah. Now, yeah, I agree. There's, listen to this now, you think, oh my God, no, that's the music from Alien. And and trying to separate that now and, and think that it's actually an original score for a film he did 17 years previous to Alien, mm-hmm. it, 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 it is quite bizarre. But going back, before that, one of the ones I have listened to in prep for this episode is his score for Lonely Other Brave, which is his first first major sort of um, theatrical film score. And I've got to say, from even from like early on, he, you could see the talent in the guy. There's there's elements of Miklos Rosa in the score. There's little mm. bits that reminded me of Rosa's score for Ben Hur. Um, there's certainly that sort of euphoric, upbeat kind of music that you would associate with. There's certainly bits which are reminiscent of Elmer Bernstein and his scores for various westerns. I just, earlier on today, just binged that score in its entirety and it is a really good score. And and bear in mind that is his first foray into you know, major motion pictures. Mm. You can see from the start, you know, I, I was thinking, oh, what's this one going to be like? It is actually one of his better scores, which is, you know, saying quite a lot. It's like he's trying to find his feet in that one. I think yeah. he, he, he hasn't got a personality a distinct personality yet yeah but it's still and it is very reminiscent of a lot of the other western schools of the time yeah and of course they were ten a penny in the um, 50s and the 60s but yeah it's still a fantastic school so moving in uh, moving on from 1962 then uh, what have we got next uh, 
Well, I will say the TV show Man From U.N.C.L.E., I know we that's in this in the 60s, but that TV show I loved as a little kid. And I not not knowing until I did this research, realising that he he scored, you know, from, from the episodes for that yeah. and, the, and the theme. And funny enough, I've got a couple of vinyls which are called TV themes. And it's like these American ones which do the 50s, 60s. I think it's it. Yeah, 50s and 60s and maybe 70s as well. And I just had a look at the scores, that the the, the, the tunes that are on there. That when I, when I was a kid watching, you know, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea come up there and the Men from Uncle. And then I'm, I'm going to stuff. I'm looking at this and I think I'm seeing John Williams doing stuff as well. I'm thinking they all got a hand in this TV work at the beginning, and it just probably put them on this pedestal at the start. And I think if you got a good show behind you, I think you get noticed. Yeah, certainly. Going on through the 60s then, uh, Von Ryan's Express. And I know that's one uh, you're a big fan of, Stephen. Yes, it's, I recently picked up the, the Blu-ray, but I haven't actually put it in the tray yet, to be honest. I've not had the time. Yeah. But, this, but listen to that score. There is there's parts of the film where what he can do, he can place you in a country just with the music and you know you're there. So, for example, there there's, during the train journey, they go through Italy and you hear like, these mandolins playing. Mm-hmm. It just... He just nails it every time to give you the pace, the accompaniment to what's going on in the movie. And it's not overtaking what you're seeing on screen. It just flows with it completely. Stephen, any, any, oh, sorry, Steve, any you want to mention now for the, from the sixties? Well, the big one for the sixties is one of his best is uh, the planet of the apes. Yeah. That was 1968. Yeah. 1968. They are, I've often said that the Planet of the Apes, and I'll mention this again later, okay, which is a bit of a spoiler, <laughs> he does desert music better than anybody. I think that whenever we see or think of music and somebody's lost in the desert now, the music that we hear now comes from that moment when uh, the astronauts are lost in the desert at the beginning of the film. Yeah. It's phenomenal. And, of course, he used so many new things in it. He did actually throw in almost the kitchen sink because he certainly threw in all the, the pans and the saucepans and the frying pans and everything else that he could find. Yeah, I think that his score for Planet of the Apes is some of the best use of percussion I've ever heard. It's just, it is, and you know, to use the title of a, of a film that he did this film score for a few years later, it's very alien sounding. It's all very unnatural. Mm. And I think the track, The Hunt, you know, it's got a lot of chanting, a lot of ape noises sort of integrated into it. But yeah, Planet of the Apes is just a phenomenal yeah. film score. It, 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 I wouldn't say for me it's one of those film scores that I would listen to over and over again in isolation from the film. But it's one of those scores that when you pair it with the images on screen, it just works absolutely perfectly. Yeah, it's it's funny because when he was chatting to Schaffner about about doing the score, this idea of electronic music was still banded about, and obviously it was earlier on with Bernard Herrmann and stuff like that. But he wanted to do an organic score. So he said, well, okay, this is over dinner, they're chatting. He said, okay, I'll trust you on that. So on the first day of recording in the studio, he said, that's the first time I heard what he was playing with. Yeah. And he, they have this trust, which they have for seven movies. And on the and also what was quite good, on the first day, Jerry wore an eight mask and half of the orchestra did as well <laughs> for a gag. Yeah. And um, I've got some great photographs in this book of mine where they're all sitting there with their eight mask on it. It's, it's, it's quite amusing, to be honest, that they can actually have a bit of a joke when they're actually being so... So have to be so on the ball when they're recording such a score for this. And, and again, he's working with Franklin J. Schaffner, which didn't he do about six or seven films with him? Yeah, seven, including Patton, which yeah, which is a, an incredible score. But I'd like, something else I'd like to say about this is, is quite amusing because 
what they were doing the idea of he, he said he didn't want to use electronic music but he, he thought the idea of having electronic manipulation so with the strings he recorded he he, said he put them in separately ran through a tape delay for an echo so this is how you got in the main theme and in the desert you had that sort of echo noise going on that was just a string section slowed down through tape delay and how do you come up with that in your head do you know what i mean it's yeah, it's, it's in, in a way, it's, it's electronic music before electronic music because it's yeah. it's taking orchestral score and it's manipulating it to sound just completely different. And then and then he got the the woodwind guys to take off the the tops of their their whatever they were blowing into, just blow into the air backwards with it, just to get these other other sort of sounding effects with the French horns and everything else. It's just it's mental. It was like a big treasure box he had there of odds and ends and thought well we'll try this and uh you know some others we'll talk about later that he, that he got involved with as well but it's, i'm out that's why i'm so outstanding about this score it's just the percussion that he gets involved in i think we get this through his whole career though the percussion he uses is yeah. incredible no one else does it i don't think prior to that score in 1968 I, I i challenge anyone to find a score that's in any way similar to it absolutely well in fact going well two of my favorites and, and certainly one of which i want to mention before um, 1968 was 1966 and 1967 two films almost kind of made back to back and it was like an American twist on the British James Bond and that was <clears throat> Our Man Flint and In Like Flint now they are two film scores which I, I'd never listened to in isolation before preparation for this episode but mm. those films are like a very tongue-in-cheek kitsch camp it's, it's almost like James Coburn is, is sort of doing a knowing wink <laughs> at the screen that this is a piss take of James Bond but for much of the film, it does kind of take itself very seriously, or, or both films, in fact. Mm. And Our Man Flint was the first film in 1966, but it's his score for In Like Flint, the sequel in 1967, which is just, you know, I think I was messaging you guys last week when I was listening to it, and I was like, guys, this score is just so good. And it, it kind of encapsulates all of that camp kitsch, sort of cool 60s vibe, and fits those films so perfectly. Yeah, yeah. It, you know, they, they are. Of all the film scores I've listened to in preparation for this episode, they are two of the ones that stand out as just a complete joy to listen to. And I've actually gone back and listened to the score for In Like Flint a second time just to sort of digest it. Yeah. Well, I purchased a film off the back of a score in the 60s on, on Amazon. And I haven't got to watch it completely because it's nearly three hours long. And this is The Sand Pebbles. Being a Steve McQueen fan, and it's one real... This is, I've got to admit, this is one movie I've never seen. I went to New York in 2007. I went into, we were staying just off, off Times Square, literally a stone throw off Times Square. And I spent a lot of the time whilst I was out there just sort of in, in the huge Virgin Megastore that they had, just buying a load of, uh, at, you know, then this was before the days of Blu-ray, Region 1 DVDs. Um, I had a multi-region player back home and I was just, you know, buying all of these DVDs that I couldn't get in the UK. Some of the films I bought there were Patton, uh, Tora Tora Tora, mm. Von Ryan's Express, and uh, The Sand Pebbles, which were all, uh, they'd all been re-released in these the sort of really lavish uh, two-disc editions with slipcovers and books. And I bought all of these films. The, the, I think the fifth film was The Towering Inferno, so that was kind of the odd one out. Ugh, but I, I, I bought these films without knowing that Jerry Goldsmith did the score for all of them. <laughs> and his score for The Sand Pebbles... It's amazing, isn't it? I have listened to it in its entirety. It is hands down one of his best scores, I have to say. It perfectly captures that you know, like you say, he can transport you to a certain location and there's elements of of Japanese culture that comes through in his score. Yeah, he, he manages to do that so well. 
because yeah, you you listen to sort of timpan bells and you know there's there's certain um, instruments that will remind you of a certain culture and a certain country. Like you know, tin drums will may remind you of Barbados, Jamaica, countries like that. And and Goldsmith does this perfectly with his score for the Sand Pebbles, which again, you know, you know, we've jumped to 1968, but Sand Pebbles is this 66. Uh, yes, yeah, yeah, 1966, definitely one of his best scores. And yeah, Steve, if you haven't yet watched the film, watch it. It's, yeah. it's I have watched, brilliant. I started, I started watching the beginning, and I, I had to pause because I, I need to watch it in its entirety. And I nearly, I nearly coughed up a lung when I saw Richard Crenner in it because I haven't seen him mm. other than in the Rambo movies. I've never seen him in anything else. Yeah, it's, great it's film. Great. Steve, um, any more for you from this era before we sort of edge towards the seventies? No, not really. Even this, there's so many. Even there's films that I really, really like, but I have to admit I haven't heard the song, the music in isolation. For example, the Staten Bug, mm. and uh, the Rio Conchos, and uh, you know, and of course he did the Twilight Zone episodes as well, the TV series. Yeah. So um, I, I haven't actually managed to get them yet, and then listen to them in isolation. But I tell you one thing: that's every time I go to. Um, my Amazon Music, and I um, put in Jerry Goldsmith, the one that, I, again, I haven't listened to yet, but I, I've going to have to because it seems to think that I really, really want to listen to it because it's recommended it to me all the time, is the Blue Max. Yes, uh, yes the Blue Max. Story. Yes. Um, isn't that the George Peppard film? Yes. Yeah. Now, one, is, yeah. one thing that Jerry Goldsmith does is he can do flight. He did, is it the Soaring Over California, the Disney ride? Apparently, so I've heard about this. I've not not actually heard about anything. I haven't listened to anything, but I, yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, I've, I've been on the ride last year, and I've listened to the actual piece of music, which you can just listen to on YouTube. And much like his music for the Blue Max, it, it just it captures that thing of flight. You know, much like the score for you know films like The Battle of Britain, there's just something sort of uplifting about it, and again, perfectly matches you know the on-screen visuals but yeah you know god we, before we move out of the 60s that's definitely one that's, that's worthy of mention so yeah uh, good call there steve i'll have to give it a listen then <laughs> oh it is it is a really it's good probably score. worth the yeah. watch as well you watch just watch the movie mm-hmm. i need to pick it up to to read to re-watch oh, it. i've not seen the blue max since i was a kid so i can't comment on you know the, the quality of the film but yeah the score itself is great right so 1970 two of his well for me, one of his lesser-known scores, but one that everyone who knows Jerry Goldsmith will be aware of, is his score for Patton. Fantastic. You yeah. and I, um, we've done an episode with John Cribbs from The Pink Smoke about one of our favourite films, The Burbs. Yes. Now, listening to the score for Patton uh, last week, I knew it was coming, but those little callbacks to Brumsfeld and all the music that... Military. Yeah, the military music. And listening to him, I'm thinking, my God, this is... This is so much like those little musical cues from the Burbs. And, but then aside from that, it's just an epic score. I think that's what the genius of Goldsmith is. In, in the Burbs, he recognised that Rumsfeld is uh, a little pattern. That's who he wants yeah, to be. Yeah, and he references his own music, which yeah. I, I didn't realise the extent to which he does that. And there's so many little sort of nods to other scores, scores which he's yet to do. Um, I'm thinking he must just have so much bubbling up in him that he wants to express in these films. I know we're saying that he's like a chameleon, but it's definitely sort of, you could hit these little points throughout different film scores and say, look, this this bit of music from First Blood is very similar to this little sort of piano piece from films like, I don't know, Ellie Confidential. There's just these little nods to, to his different films throughout his career, and certainly 
one of the key ones is pattern, which he would later then reuse 19 years later in the Burbs. It's funny because I've just recently rewatched the Burbs as I picked up my hour release. And I did. So I some, sometimes I not don't ignore the score. Depends on a first or second time of watching it. But then when I listened to the score again on, in, on its own in its entirety, it just it just brought it all back to me, funnily mm. enough. Yeah. Which proves how much of a good film it is in the first place for the score to, to be that kick that memory in my old block of my brain. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, though Patton, I've I've listened to some of that score. I've, I've been watching some video YouTube clips from the film. It is up there, it really is. And I think that's not had enough credit where credit's due. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, 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 sure. The other one from nineteen seventy that I've gotta mention, Sam Peckinpah, The Ballad of Cable Hogue. Now, have you guys had a chance to listen to this one? I didn't know, but I'm, and you're going to hopefully explain it to me right. so I can... Now, The Ballad of the Cable Hogue is one of the, I, I don't know, one of the, the more sort of quirkier, light-hearted, probably more poetic Sam Peckinpah films. It's certainly nowhere near as brutal and, and cynical as the likes of The Wild Bunch, Ride the High Country, Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid. You know, it's a lovely sort of laconic, poetic film. And there's this song called Tomorrow is the Song I Sing, which um, Jerry Goldsmith composed and Richard Gillis uh, did the lyrics for. And there's little elements of these song which are woven throughout the score. It, it's a beautiful film. I, I definitely recommend you check it out, but the score is just one of Goldsmith's best. Steve, are you um, familiar with that one? I, I, I'm not aware of that film, I'm afraid, no. I haven't seen that. It uh, is a great film. I would recommend it. it it's not... Um, I don't think that should be your entry point for Sam Peckinpah Westerns, but it is definitely one of the ones that... Um, the more I watch it, the more I like it. So, moving on. Uh, Steve, uh, Tora, 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 is that one you want to say anything about? I haven't seen it for a long time, and I didn't get to find the score, but I, ha- I have seen the film years ago, and I loved it thoroughly. So, I can imagine the way that score was was put out there for the area and where what it was involved with in that part of with J- Japanese attacks and everything else that that score probably just worked to a treat I should imagine yeah it does and there's a lot of that sort of thing like I said with the score for the sand pebbles that it, it sounds it like just, yeah it's, it's Japanese yeah one of the ones and again from the same year from 1970 that was one of the biggest surprises for me was his score for Howard Hawks' Rio Lobo from 1970. I'm glad you mentioned that one. Yeah, go on, go on then. I'll hand over to you, Steve. Well, no, no, it's just that, you know, with the fact that he's working with Howard Hawks, I think it's worth mentioning just for that reason. Yeah. The film is not up there with Rio Bravo or Red River, but it's still a really, really good film. Yeah. And I've got to have to go back and watch it again just because I didn't realise that Goldsmith had done the score. Yeah, and it is... I, I've listened to the score today, and it is a fantastic score. I'm listening to a lot of these films, some of which I've not even seen, but the scores are just... They're immediately making me want to see the film. I, I've done an episode on Rio Bravo, obviously where we mentioned Red River as well, but I've not seen Rio Lobo, and having listened to the score now, I'm definitely going to have to go back and check that out. Yeah, I haven't seen a John Wayne film in an age, so... I, I'm on you with that one. I must admit, it's. I need to see a lot of those John Wayne movies again. I think True Grit was the last one I really remember so well, but other the others are a bit of a blur these days. So, what have we got next on your list, then, guys? Uh, moving forward chronologically. Well, just quickly, even though we've mentioned well, Escape from Planet of the Apes. Yeah, I love that movie, and it's a great twist on the story where you have the apes coming to to Earth on the reversal of what we had in the first movie. And again, Goldsmith recreates that similar sort of score, but then 
what he does do with this is to give it that 70s twist if it was like, like something like Lalo Schifrin or something like that. And I just think it works. There is some comedy section, obviously, in this movie and that, and he plays on that with, with that sort of 70s style score. And uh, I love I love listening to this one. I've got this on the CD, so it's definitely one I go back to. Right, where have we got next, guys? Papillon. Papillon. That's interesting, actually. Go on in, uh, Stephen, I'll uh, let you talk about that. Well, I actually re-watched that recently because I don't have the score in any shape or form. Mm-hmm. But there's only 35 minutes of music. Yes. Which is incredible to think to be honest and actually when i did watch when i started watching the movie the first bit of the first bit of music coming into it, it took ages to actually find it to be in there and i think maybe that's the way this movie is but it's a fantastic film and don't anyone think oh i'll go and watch the remake don't just watch this movie uh, steve mcqueen and dustin hoffman it's it's an amazing movie i've read the book as well which i thoroughly enjoyed and i just can't stop thinking of dustin hoffman's teeth in the film <laughs> you know, I haven't seen it for such a long time, but the one thing I remember from it is that it's one of the sweatiest films I've ever seen. Agreed, yeah. So that's 1973 or 1974. What can we say that has already been said about Jerry Goldsmith's score for Chinatown? It's gorgeous. It's we've already we've already done a podcast on Chinatown. We've mm-hmm. already mentioned it. It's one of those. It's it's completely different to anything that he's done up to then. Well, we've seen that a lot, haven't we? Yeah. Um, and it's so beautiful. It's one of those things that it's late night music. You could put it on at you know midnight, and it just seems to have an atmosphere of its own. It's mm. it's, it's gorgeous. And you mentioned, uh, I think Steve, about no one does desert music better than Jerry yeah. Goldsmith. Now yeah. this is obviously a film of water or a lack of water, and water being you know diverted and. And, and being the source of all of this sort of intrigue and, and scandal and, you know, double dealing. His music in Chinatown, apart from the sort of romantic film noir elements, it just sounds dry and arid and it just reminds me of of, of J.J. Giddy's just, you know, snooping out and about in the day, you know, trying to investigate this this mystery that he's become embroiled in. Like you say, you say about, you know, Papillon being a sweaty and hot film, like the <laughs> score for Chinatown. There's elements of that way. I just, you know, I, I think of Bacon Sun, and you know, and it's, it's all to do with the strings and 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 how he orchestrates that. And it's also mistrust. Yeah. Even listening to the score by itself, yeah. you get the sense that you can't trust anybody. Yeah. It's sinister, but there's romanticism. Yeah. It, it's just everything. It it is one of hands down one of the greatest film scores ever. And obviously, you know, we talked about it at length in our um, Chinatown episode with Bill Scurry, but. <laughs> Enough about Chinatown for now, because I think that one might be coming up later on. Capricorn One? Oh, Capricorn One, yes. Well, go on, Steve. Yeah, so I adore, I didn't actually know... Oh, hang on, whoa, hang on. whoa Steve. Capricorn whoa. One is 1977. Surely there's some from 1976 you want to mention. Yes. Oh, oh sorry. Actually, this, yeah, there is, actually. Sorry. <laughs> Come on. Uh, do you want to talk about the one, the one before I talk about the Omen, one before it? Yeah, go on then. So, Logan's Run, I love this movie. It's fantastic. It's the way it's set in this bubble of a world because the rest of the world went to pop. And obviously, you're, you're given a, a lifeline of, of, I think it was 35 when you die, something like that. 30, yeah. 
30. Yeah. Anyhow, so I'm the... saying that I've not even seen the film. <laughs> <laughs> haven't you seen it? Oh, really? Yeah, you must. Haven't you seen my tweet? I put a tweet out uh, early on in the week, just aimed at everyone who's like on on isolation. What films haven't you seen that you feel you should have seen? And one of the four films I picked was Logan's Run. Never oh, seen really? it. Really, I must have missed that. Oh my word! Anyhow, I love the way that again. Jerry Goldsmith is being sort of um, daring in, in his score work, where he's giving you this futuristic electronic score, which I like personally. And then when you've got something like the love theme in this movie, then you've got the real Goldsmith doing what he does best. But someone here doesn't like this, do they? Well, right. No, let me. Right. And what are you referring to? <laughs> Defend yourself, yeah. No. What I did was I, I, I put the score on as it is on Spotify. And the opening few tracks are just, yeah. and I think I described it as too plinky plonky and futuristic. Libs and now, blobs, is it? <laughs> yeah. And I, I basically gave up on it. It's, it, it's one of two scores, and I've listened to dozens upon dozens of scores in the last couple of weeks of Jerry Goldsmith, and it's one of the two scores I gave up on. But I should have stuck with it because when I actually went onto YouTube and listened to um, a Logan's Run Suite, which is sort of like a, I think a, Mixed, a tw- yeah. yeah, a twelve or fifteen minute track, which sort of mixes lots of his different themes and scores from the film. I actually thought, yeah, you actually, I wish I'd stuck with that now because it is a very good score. But yeah, the kind of futuristic bits, which electronic. Electronic music like that, when it's done by the likes of John Carpenter, you know, it works. But when it's done in the 70s, trying to predict what's going to be happening 20, yeah. 30, whatever, just for me. <clears throat> and, I, and again, I haven't seen the film. That's what I think, that's the missing part yes. for you. because It is, yeah, yeah. When you see the beginning of the film and you see like this little, uh, what you would call it, the train going through the, the bubble and everything else, and you've got all this sort of weird music, it's, it's setting the, the tone of the era of the future mm-hmm. with the, with that sort of score. So it does work. But as I say, unless you sit and watch the movie, then you might appreciate it more. Especially when it's got Jenny Agatha in it. You have to, you have to watch it. It's... Massive fan of Jenny Agatha, yeah. American Werewolf, and yeah. So there's another film from 1976 that I know you guys are going to want to talk about. The only film that he ever won the Oscar for. It is. Which, the the Omen. Criminally. It is criminal that uh, out of all the nominations he had over the years, which I think, what did he, he had sort of six Grammy Awards, five Primetime Emmy Awards, nine mm-hmm. Golden Globes, four British Academy, 18 Academy Awards, but only won one. Yeah, he got, not, he got nominated for Freud. Yeah, amongst them. A, a Patch of Blue, The Sand Pebbles, Plant of the Apes, Patton, Papillon, Chinatown, The Wind and the Lion, The Omen, for which he won, The Boys from Brazil, Star Trek Motion Picture, Poltergeist, uh, Under Fire, Hoosiers, Basic Instinct, Ellie Confidential, and Milan. So he got nominated that many times and only won for The Omen. Anyway, The Omen. What do we think of that as a score, guys? You know, I often say, and I, I know I've, we've already discussed it, but how I like to listen to music when uh, I'm writing. And when I'm writing a, a scary scene, there's a few uh, scores that I've always referred to. And The Omen and The Omen 2 are two that I always do. It's You just listen to it, the voices, they just put you on edge straight away. I mean, in, in, and, and like I say, there was one score, I think, that probably stood out when I was a child, made me think, oh, I wonder who did that, because that is so different. Mm-hmm. And it was, I, I, I think that it was a film that made me aware of Goldsmith. And that, I, it was a couple of years later, it was probably in the early 80s. Yeah, I, it, there's a great story about how he uh, wrote it. He was, went, went to the director a couple of months beforehand, and uh, Richard Donner said, so what have you got in mind? And he said, just 
off the top of my head, he said voices. And then months later, they were just about ready to prepare. And Richard Donner said, oh, I can't wait to hear the voices. And Goldsmith was, oh, um, I better start writing some voices then. But it worked so well. And of course, uh, Ava Santiani, the, the first main track, the one that everybody remembers, that was actually nominated for Best Song as well. It was, yeah. Which is <laughs> unusual. Because it's funny because he actually went to see some training of the Rottweilers when he was having his conversation in studios, wasn't it? That's right, yes. <laughs> but I quite like, the, there's a story I picked up on when I was watching on my Blu-ray of Collection of the Omen. And we all know what the love theme is. So we can, I think I think the most prominent part of it is when you see the thorns taking Damien for a walk by the river. And you see the scene play out where Damien goes missing for a second. You know, he starts to cry. But the, the, the music, it's just like a love thing. So Harvey Bernard and Richard Donner, sort of liked it that much they thought that tune could actually be a, a song so they thought well yeah why not so his wife jerry's wife carol said well i'll write the lyrics she went oh okay so she wrote the lyrics well the idea was they wanted to put it on the album itself when it was to come out so they had a few people come in there they went to put people in there to, to do the singing of the song but it just sounded too corny it didn't sit right Anyhow, one other day they're in there. Jerry was in, in the in the recording studio section, obviously, where you're listening to it and you're going to mix it. And Carol's out there on the piano and just singing away to the actual song that she wrote. And they, the, the mics were on and they said, they said you start again and play it out? She went, OK. So they recorded it without her knowing and they stuck it on the album. <laughs> it was till I was a little bit later that I realised that it was his, his wife. But how cool is that? Yeah. Have your marriage, you know, you know, in sync there to do something like that? Yeah, it's, it's a brilliant score. It's the vocals in The Omen. Now, it's certainly not the first time, it won't be the last time that Jerry Goldsmith integrated vocals into his scores, but I think it's certainly one of the most effective. It's just, you know, I listened to it last week, by far one of his most atmospheric. And yeah, I, I can understand, Steve, if, you, if you're if you writing stuff and you want to write you know, about horror and get in the mood, that and his score for The Omen 2 are just the perfect scores to sort of get you into that mindset. Uh, they, they're just phenomenal, they are. And uh, yeah. they are so iconic now that people even... You know, even on cinephiles can hear that song and know, A, that, you know, it's a horror. And a lot of them will say, oh, that's the omen. Pop culture today, you hear it's been imitated many times throughout the years. This is going way off topic. But even in Only Fools and Horses, when they had the son Damien, they were using similar sort of omen music for it. Mm. So it's it's there all the time in all sorts of places. So moving back to the film you were talking about, Steve, obviously we've talked about Planet of the Apes from 1968, was a, which was a film which saw three astronauts end up in the middle of the desert. And another film that Jerry Goldsmith did the score for that ended up with three astronauts in the desert was Capricorn One from yes, 1977. What a great conspiracy story this is. Oh my God, yes. <laughs> I recently, I say I picked. I think I picked up the the Blu-ray. I think last year because I hadn't seen it for ages. And uh, it's a fantastic film. And again, we've got deserts again, haven't we? So we have. the way he's got the setting where the astronauts are being chased by the uh, the baddies, should we say, in this movie? Yeah. And you have the helicopters trying to search for him, and that all that just comes in together. And he just brings it up. He puts that pace on the film where they're being chased throughout them throughout the whole film. J- James section. James Brolin eating the snake. Oh, God, yeah. He eats a snake in one film and he gets bitten in another. That was Westworld, but not Jerry Goldsmith. Yeah. But... Yeah. <laughs> and Steve, if you get a chance, because you've not seen it, have you? I found a car. Well, it was actually on uh, the BFI player. Mm. I sat down and watched it. Uh, well, not all of it. I, I had to leave about 20 minutes into it. I, and um, when I went back, it was gone. It was oh, no longer right. available. So 
I've only seen up until the far as they are taken from the rocket and taken to this mysterious building in the middle of the desert. Yeah, yeah. and O.J. Simpson doesn't say a word up until then. I don't think it, it's <laughs> it's one of, it's one of the best conspiracy thrillers I've ever seen. It's a film I saw at a very young age, and it really stuck with me more about the film itself really than the score, which for me wasn't particularly memorable. But I did re-listen to it for this episode. And it is a great score, absolutely great film, and definitely one I recommend you you check out, Steve. Well, one question then: Who plays Stanley Kubrick? <laughs> yes, of course. <laughs> Ooh, let's let's not open that can of worms, shall we? <laughs> so that's nineteen seventy-seven. Can I just mention one in nineteen seventy-eight? Certainly. We've mentioned Omen two already. Yeah. But one, a film which I know a lot of people hate. It's got terrible reputation. The Swarm. The swarm. Yes. Oh, I really like the score for the Swarm. <laughs> You could actually, I don't know what what uh, instrument he uses, but you can actually hear the buzzing of the bees on the score. It's fantastic. It is, it is. I'm not going to say much about the film because I haven't seen it since I was a kid, but it's one of those ones like Earthquake, Meteor, Roller Coaster, all the various plane crash films that you had from that yeah. era. Some of them are great, like The Towering Inferno, others like The Swarm. Yeah, not so good. But yeah, good score, really good score. So let's move on to 1979 and two scores... Stephen, I'll hand over to you. Which one are we going to start with? Do we start chronologically with Alien? Let's do it. Yeah, go on. Okay, so I didn't realise a lot of this controversy, even though I've got a double album on vinyl and I've got mm-hmm. a box set with Ford vinyl and realising that there is so many different versions of this score, I thought, what the heck's going on here? Because I, I always think I remember the right score that I've seen, but then again, I don't mm-hmm. think I do. But the way, as you said earlier, this the temp tracking idea that was used for this, the guy that was dealing with this, Terry, is it? Yeah, Williams. Terry Wallace. So he originally... He was he was going to do the sound for the movie, but he ended up cutting the film instead. Yeah, Terry Rawlins, the editor, yeah? Yeah, so he decided to get this temp track together. He, he just scoured the, the works of Goldsmith because he knew he was going to do the film and started putting parts in. And then for the approach of this film, first of all, Jerry, loved, as we know, and we're going to go into this a bit later, that he loved doing sci-fi. And the way that Jerry likes to work in the way he sort of builds his scores, he likes to watch a composer cut of the film. So in this case, he watched uh, Alien. And I'm not going to swear, but he, he did say that it scared him, literally, just seeing that film. So You, you can swear on this podcast, Stephen Gordon. So, so, okay, so Jerry Goldsmith said he shit himself. Yeah. <laughs> literally. So he, his approach to Alien in that well with the opening thing didn't go down very well. He wanted it very, very majestically, very sci-fi the way he likes to think it would go. But there were the disagreements with Ridley Scott and probably, I think, Fox as well. They decided to throw in the temp track from a film that he did earlier, which we talked about earlier, which was Freud. Yeah. Now, also what they did was the score he wrote for the theme took him like a day to do. And he said, no, no, I want you to get this scariness at the start of the film. So what you do here as the main theme took him five minutes to write and he wasn't happy. So... I, I think, again, Jerry gets a bit of a bum deal sometimes. He's at the hands of the director and, and the company that's making this movie. But uh, it's, I think it's the way it goes. And uh, if anyone's interested, the tracks from Freud were Charcoal Show, Desperate Case, I think are the main two, if you listen to those tracks. And you will probably get that feeling of the pod doors opening in the beginning of Alien and all that. Yeah. 
uh, Jerry Goldsmith wanted to do was to put you in, lull you into a false sense of security. So everything is lush, everything is beautiful, and you don't get the discordant music until they are they come to you know the egg and they land on the planet. Yeah, and I think that's a great idea. I know that um, his music for Freud was also used in the vent scene when Dallas is in the front vent. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, you can actually hear a harpsichord in the background, which doesn't quite fit the scene. I mean, we, we don't notice it because obviously the scene is so intense and, you know, it it works. But I do like the idea of lulling us into a false sense of security so we think everything's okay and then slowly pulling the rug from underneath us. Well, that's the way it works well, isn't it? Um, but one of the great things that Fox did in, you know, their later Blu-ray releases of Alien is that the original score is now available as an alternate track on the Blu-ray. So you could listen to it there if you want. Just this score for Alien in general, even the music that was used from Freud. I think it's only like 36, 37 minutes worth of score actually in the film. But my God. It's fantastic. It is up there with, with his best. And I, I think personally it's up there with the greatest film scores of all time. Because it's, it's discordant, it is, like I said about his score for Planet of the Apes, it is very alien. You know, there's a lot of romantic, almost classical music elements in the opening you know, sort of part of the film, certainly when they're coming out of hypersleep, with just this sort of static body moving throughout the Nostromo. He shifts from that sort of ethereal sci-fi music to just complete horror, just on a, just turns on a dime. And, and when it does, it is just phenomenal. And, and again, like a, all the great film scores should do, perfectly matches the stuff that's on screen mm-hmm. it's one of those scores that i think maybe because it is so short it's easy to, to digest and i can listen to it in isolation from the film but i'm also seeing those images in my head when i'm listening to it and for me that just marks it was just a, a perfect film score because it's complementing the images on screen and then when you listen to it in isolation you're seeing the images from the film yeah, yeah. you have to give terry rolling a, a bit of a, a bit of a nudge to say yeah well done for that because yeah because i do think the music from fright does work and I can mm. I can see why Jerry Goldsmith is pissed off. He's the composer. He doesn't want an editor, you know, <clears throat> picking the mu- you know the music for the final film. For me, it does work. I think it was made worse because Goldsmith didn't find out until he actually saw the final film with an audience. Yeah. Mm. And I think that you know the fact they hadn't told him that and you know his his end title music they used uh, uh, Symphony Number no. Two Romantic by Howard Hansen mm-hmm. instead of his end title music. Yeah, and he place, didn't. Yeah. He didn't know anything about this until he saw the film with everybody else. You know, he's such a, even by that time, you know, in 1979, he was already a well-established composer. He was on the way to becoming a legend. They should have treated him with a little bit more respect in that respect, I think. Well, speaking of legendary, let's move on to his next score. The same year, (laughs) 1979, Star Trek, the motion picture. What can we say about that? He was again shortchanged a little bit, wasn't he? Uh, hang on, this is also a film that we've done an episode on in the past. Yeah, I've listened to that many times. My God, what a score. You know, this was the big film for the Star Trek franchise, making the jump from the small screen. You know, it had finished in the late 60s in 69. For years, they tried to sort of kickstart it with the Star Trek Phase 2 show, which was aborted, but then the ideas for that show actually became, you know, a lot of that was sort of ported over into, you know, the first big screen track out in. The, the music that Jerry Goldsmith created for this film would last and it would endure because obviously then, you know, the main theme from Star Trek the motion picture was reused again in 1987 for Star Trek The Next Generation. And, mm. and for me, Star Trek The Next Generation was kind of like my main gateway drug. I had seen The Wrath of Khan when I was younger and I'd seen The Search for Spock, but I'd never seen the motion picture until probably the late 80s. Yes, I think it was the late 80s. 
Mm. And watching it and being familiar with The Next Generation, which was airing at the time, I was amazed at the fact that this Star Trek film, which I'd never seen, actually had the music from The Next Generation. And it was only then that I made that connection. That was confusing, probably, wasn't it? (laughs) A little bit, yeah, it certainly was. But my God, what a score. And again, it's that discordant percussion. It's how do you get through music... The, the scope and the scale of this giant thing that the Voyager probe has, late, has now become, having mm. travelled, you know, for hundreds of years through space and, and just sort of modifying itself and growing into this giant whatever it is, really. Star Trek, the motion picture, does have a lot. It does get ribbed for being, and I've heard it called Star Trek, the slow motion picture. And that's, I, I don't disagree with that. I think that, you know, certainly in the you know the theatrical version, there's some pacing issues with the film, a lot of which were t- tidied out in the 2001 director's edition where Robert Wise yeah. was able to go back, recut the film, new special effects were done for it. And, and that, for me, is, is my preferred version of the film. I don't think I've actually seen the director's version, but I have to say that this film is my favourite of all the Star Trek movies. I think that it's got a majesty to it and a size to it and a love of space mm. that I find captivating. And it's got it's got a nautical element, doesn't it? And I think that's, it has, yeah, yeah, yeah. But that scene when uh, Kirk is going up to the Enterprise the first time, I know a lot of people say it goes on forever. To me, that is perfect. You know, I mean, it, it's you know, this this man who is first of all he, he's going up into space, so he's got to capture that. But it's also yeah. this love affair between this one man and this you know ship. I think it captures is beautifully. I can watch that time and time again. The way it was shot was that the idea that you didn't get to see the Enterprise in its full glory until near the end, so you kept seeing little scenes of it and parts of it as they're swinging around in the as they're flying around in it. And I suppose is it back five minutes long, isn't it? Roughly five six minutes. But then he wouldn't see the whole ship if you were there with him. No, because that was know. the idea, wasn't it? You had the eyes of Kurt looking through that space shuttle. Yes, yeah. And, you know, they, they, they'd given Douglas Trumbull millions to do the special effects, and I just think they wanted to get their money's worth. It's unfortunate, I think, because, again, the way Jerry likes to work with a uh, composer's track, you know, he wants a copy of the movie. The film wasn't finished, and mm. the special effects weren't finished, so... When he tried to watch a, some sort of version of the film, it would come up and say, special effects needed. <laughs> so he's trying to put together a score to a film he's not seen the end of. Yeah, yeah, that's right, yeah. Jerry Goldfish's words was, I was crushed. So obviously when they were doing the theme and everything else, and he had his idea and Wise wasn't particularly happy with it. So he went away, come back and then changed it slightly. You can hear that, you can hear the alternate version on YouTube. But it does, the alternate version doesn't sound right because you know it so well. Yeah, you're right. I've listened to that version, it just doesn't sound the same, does it? No, it sounds off. It sounds like it's off key. It is off key, yeah. It is because, like I say, it's become so iconic. Do you want to talk about the instrument? I was looking into this today, actually. They, they call it the blaster beam. This is a 12 to 18 foot long metal beam structure with numerous wires tethered either end like a guitar. And you would have a metal object, or in this case, I think they used an armored shell, empty hollow armored shell, bang it on the string, slide it across, and use something to whack inside it to give you this sound for Vija. And it's incredible. If you listen to it on its own in YouTube, there's a few videos you can see even playing with it. It's um, where they got the idea from this, I, I, I do not know. It's been used now since then in so many movies throughout the years. Oh, yeah, well, the joke always was that um, whenever somebody um, working with Goldsmith would use something outside, something odd, something unusual, they would say, quick, get that, he's going to use mm. it in his next film. <laughs> yeah, definitely one of his most iconic scores. We'll see how it comes up later on uh, on people's lists. But moving on from that, what have we got next, guys? 
so obviously Steve hasn't seen the, the uh, heard the final conflict, but again that is very much in keeping with the rest of the two scores he did beforehand. I like it, and I think I think Steve, you would do. I think I think you'd be you'd be quite happy with that. I think yeah yeah I, I'll have to give it a listen. Back in the 1980s now, I think the first one for me, the first major one that I uh, I love is the Poltergeist one yes, in 1982. Yes, it is absolutely. It's got cool. one of the great end title themes. Right, the end title uh, theme um, is it is, is Carol Caroline theme? Carol Ann's yeah. theme, right? I I've been rewatching a lot of Italian giallo lately, a lot of Dario Argento. And that vocal in that track is so similar to music from the likes of Ennio Morricone. You know, he scored a lot of Argento films. And whether intentionally or not, I definitely think that Goldsmith is homaging or at least paying tribute to a lot of these Italian giallo horror film composers. Yeah, Suspira is very, very similar. The yeah, Suspira yeah, has got yeah. a lot of yeah, that. Yeah. And it was only when I was listening to the Poltergeist score in isolation, having recently watched a lot of Giallo, I thought, yeah, it, it literally, it just sticks out. What a film, what a score. Uh, 1982 for me is one of the greatest years for film ever. And and Poltergeist, that featured quite highly in my own uh, favourite horror films from uh, a few episodes back when we covered horror. What an amazing score. I know Poltergeist, yes, it's a Toby Hooper film, and I'm not going to go into the controversy about what <laughs> Spielberg's involvement was, but... Poltergeist does feel like a Spielberg film. Goldsmith and Spielberg never really worked together to any great degree, obviously because Spielberg has always favoured John Williams. But this is certainly one of the best scores for any Spielberg film I've ever heard. I do like the story where they say that Spielberg had his hands all over Poltergeist. (laughs) And in the scene where the um, fellow's looking in the mirror and the hands reach up and start pulling the face. Yeah, uh, that's Spielberg's hands. That's Spielberg's hands, yes. I know, yeah. If I remember rightly, actually, obviously you had E.T. at some point being put together and you had Poltergeist and the two starring roles for the girls were on opposites attract. They ended up swapping roles for this due to how how it worked, even though they went for opposite roles originally. So Poltergeist, the the girl that played Carol Ann, Mm -hmm. went for E.T. and Drew Barrymore, vice versa. Or whatever. So Spielberg's definitely got his fingers in in the pie there. Obviously, I think due to the kids' involvement, I think probably. But I say it is a Tope Topeka film without a doubt. The only thing I think that reminds me of Spielberg is is the beginning with the seeing all the houses and the, the neighbourhood. Yeah, that just tells me it's a Spielberg movie. But, I, yeah, I, but it's also the you know there's a strong family element to the film. But again, let's not go down this rabbit hole. Yeah, it's <clears throat> yeah. Staying in 1982, then um, I know this is one you're going to have a lot to say about Stephen First Blood. Oh, God, yes. <laughs> Richie Roberts and Neil Gaskin have done a huge in-depth episode all about the Rambo films. There's probably very little we could say about the film that they haven't already said, but this score, wow. It's, it is up there, and I think, again, him putting a theme together and then branching off with some motifs, which resonate through all three movies... Yeah. Even though they, even though he tweaks it for being in Asia in in the second film or whatever, if you can put these three or themes together, I, mean, I don't think we can do this. But all three of those movies together are just awesome with with the scores. I, I agree. Before I'd gone and listened to all the scores for this episode, I probably would have said, yeah, undoubtedly a score for the first one was going to be the better of the three. But I've got to say, the big surprise for me in prep for this episode was how good the score for Rambo Three is. It, it's, yeah. it's not the best Rambo film, far from it, but my God, that score is epic. It just goes to show that Goldsmith, 
very rarely does he have you know an off day. Doesn't matter what you know the quality of the film that he's composing the music for. He just always gives it his all. And that score for Rambo Three was just one of the biggest surprises of prepping for this episode because I haven't seen the film for years. I'm not a hater of the film. I do actually quite like it. it, it it's an enjoyable action film, and you know it's got Rambo in it. But the score is just absolutely tremendous. Again, percussion instruments used heavily in these, and especially in, in the second film where we have like when he's preparing to go, and you get. All these sort of bass guitar and rhythmic sounds, which I think in that in the second score you hear throughout the whole film. And I don't want to sing them because I'll be awful, but um, it just sticks like glue with this. And because I think Rambo movies actually what they do is they lift the film even more. You know, if you watch Rambo without the score, it'd be it's okay. But you put the score into the film, same way I think Jaws works for John Williams. If you take the score away and watch some of those scenes, they don't work as well without the score in there. And it lifts it and brings the pace and moves it forward. I just adore these three movies and and the scores even more so for me. Uh, before we move on to, I think, one of the big scores we want to talk about, 1983, Psycho 2. It's a very underrated sequel and I have noticed in recent years that it is getting a lot more love, especially, you know, since Arrow have re-released it. The score for that film is Jerry Goldsmith doing the near impossible and following up Bernard Herrmann, who created one of the most iconic scores ever. But his score for Psycho 2, I've got to say, is really good and really services that film really well. Yeah, I don't know if it's... I'd say, the film's okay. It's not the greatest movie in the world, but I must admit, I did enjoy it. Yeah. I remember seeing it first time round, and I I had watched it a, f- uh, a few months ago, ironically, but yeah, I think there was Psycho 3 as well, wasn't there? So I think I've... I think I've seen is it three movies I think there was wasn't there well there's, there's Psycho 4 as well wasn't that directed by Mick Garris I won't knock that one because I've got I, I got high regard for, for Mick so um, I won't knock it <laughs> so 1984 Gremlins a Joe Dante film Stephen Joe Dante yes one of the greatest directors of all time if you ask me mm-hmm. going back a few years of course they worked together on Twilight Zone the movie that was yeah. the first movie that they worked together Dante's previous films The Howling and Piranha the music was done by uh, Pino Donaggio mm-hmm. And uh, this was the first film that um, they did entirely, you know, together, Gremlins, Dante and Goldsmith. What can I say? It's, you know, we've mentioned how the atmosphere of Chinatown, we've, you know, the the aridness of some of his scores, the, you know, the action and everything. This is a really entertaining piece of work. The Gremlins rag of end titles is nothing like you've ever heard before. And it's two people. You can, you can. They, they seem to um, get along so well that you could tell it's just two filmmakers on the very top of the game having a great deal of a fun in this film. And you know, it's got all the, the, you know, the lyrical quality of um, some of his other films and everything. But it's also got that little element of, you know, lack wackiness of Looney Tunes, <coughs> which is introduced from the very, very beginning. And I know that, you know, Spielberg famously thought he was going to be a horror. That's what he wanted. And he was quite surprised by the final product. But I think pleasantly surprised would be the answer. Dante and Goldsmith, they are a pair, you know, in that uh, you can't really, really uh, pull apart. So whilst we're on the, the topic of Joe Dante films, let's skip forward to you to 1985 and The Explorers, because I know that is one you want to talk about, Steve. Well, should we wait then? Because um, I, I think I'm going to be discussing that a bit later. Oh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Another spoiler. <laughs> so what have we got next, guys? Of course, in 1985, he did the score for Legend for Ridley Scott, yeah. which was famously uh, removed for the North American version, where Tangerine Dream do the score for that. 
They did, yes. Have You've you got to wonder why he worked with um, Scott again. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Things not working out well for him. But again, um, fortunately, that score is available on the subsequent uh, special edition DVD and Blu-ray releases. I've got the vinyl, by the way, as well, which uh, I don't think is around too often these days. But yeah, it's uh, it's a it's a wonderful score. But um, these different people like to throw in different types of music they want to have and different versions for different countries. You know, it's it's, it's all right. But I love the score is great. I mean, I, that was again I saw that in the movie, in the cinema, picked up that score straight away. It was just it was a favourite of mine. Mm-hmm. Portal Guys Two, I, I haven't seen that in years. I mean, it's going to be very it's a very very similar score again yeah. from from Goldsmith. Yeah, Poltergeist 2 is another one of those films, kind of like Jaws 2 and Psycho 2, where the original is pretty much perfect, but I still have got a bit of a soft spot for the sequel. Mm. You know, there's the old guy that's really creepy. You know, there's the the scene where Craig T. Nelson vomits up uh, an armless and legless zombie. It it is just insane. Um, But yeah, I I do quite like Poltergeist 2, and again, cracking score from Goldsmith. And of course, in 1987, then you had another John Day in a space, which I have to say, I had this on tape, right? And uh, it just goes to show that you know the difference in uh, how things are developed. When I originally had it, on the one side you had Goldsmith's score, and on the B side it was just music from the film. Mm. That does not work these days, I don't think. No. But uh, yeah, another fantastic score. It, the electronics use of electronics in there is is a futuristic element into it. But yeah, my my vinyl, the vinyl version again is very similar. Where side one is is the songs from the film of side two. Unfortunately, we've only got about five tracks that are Goldsmith, but I'm sure there's more that could be brought out at some point somewhere if someone could get the rights to it. Yeah, yeah, great score. So that is 1987. In 88, he, he only did two films. He did Rambo 3, which we've discussed, and Criminal Law. And then 1989. I'll let you guys talk about this. Off you go. It's going to come up later when we do our favourite It five. is going to come up I later. know it is. <laughs> but let's, let's talk about it now. Let's talk about the big one for us, Steve. The Burbs. Yeah. As you know, guys, I've been doing a bit of a landscaping project in my back garden. I've been toying with a pickaxe and a shovel and builders' buckets and God knows what. I've just been moving tons upon tons of earth. Last week, uh, and fa- you know, we've had some fantastic weather. Typical being, you know, everyone's on lockdown. The British weather decides to actually be good for once. I was out in the back garden, digging my garden up with a pickaxe in the baking sun, and I had my, <laughs> had my, my earphones in, listening to the score from the birds. <laughs> Oh, if it was only at night and raining. But, well, yeah, or like in the film In the Baking Sun when you've got Art and Ray digging up the Clopax back garden. Yes, it was yeah. perfect. It was it was just one of those moments where I thought, my God, this is just surreal. 
But yeah. If you'd have found a dog's bone in there that you'd be digging up, then that would have freaked you right but out. I, I, think I, did, I did find a little bone, which I took over to my wife, and I said, look what I found. I said, this is Walter. <laughs> Fantastic. But yeah, you know, anyone who's listened to our Burbs episode, which uh, Steve and I did with John Cribbs, you'll know that it's one of our all-time favourite films. And the score for the film. It's just magical. Yeah, we've already mentioned about how he, you know, plays off some of his old scores like Patton and things like that and yeah. uh, Morricone and stuff. But there's also that great organ that's in it. It's almost like Phantom of the Opera. It's really gothic. and It's all, well, I say gothic. It's horrific, but not terrifying. It's more like the Munsters and the Adams Family, you know, the old mm. series. It's that kind of playfulness to it. Yeah, the, the Burbs for me is my, it's my feel-good film. It is, yeah. It, it is, and the score for this film is, and again, it's hard for me to divorce the music from the actual film itself. It's a film I've loved ever since I saw it 30 years ago. The music is just there for me, and when I'm listening to the music, I'm seeing you know the images from the film. But it's also just such a, a just a gloriously uplifting, yet at the same time sinister, spooky, and it, it just does everything. It, it, it takes a film that is already great and just elevates it. Yeah, and it's also one of the most hummable soundtracks. It is, yeah. Yeah, you can't, you know, uh, yeah. and there's moments. If you ever see a kid riding down, you know, a bike down a street, the, the theme just pops into yeah, my head. It does, it As does. you said, digging up the back garden, all these things. Mm. You can reference it, you know, endlessly. So, 1989, uh, Goldsmith also did another Star Trek score. He did Star Trek V, The Final Frontier. Yeah, it's, as I've always said, it's a better score than the, than, than the movie. Agreed. The score, I think the score actually is brilliant. Obviously, on my soundtrack, I've got the Nichelle Nichols singing the song that she does when she's on the desert mm-hmm. with the fans, trying to get the, the guys to notice her in the in the camp where they're going to try and raid it. But I just, it's, again, I think what happens here that Jerry Goldsmith has sort of progressed through the Star Trek movies and he's elevated it every time and he's changed it, tweaked it. It's just, it's outstanding, it really is. Okay, uh, moving on to 1990, he did three film scores that year, one of which was The Russia House, but i got a funny feeling we're going to be concentrating on the other two. Oh, no, we got to mention The Russia House, Branford Marsalis. I love a bit of Marsalis. So, um, I, I, I do like a bit of jazz, you know, and I do like The Russia House very, very much. They, they also use a, um, one of his other um, instruments that you don't often hear about is a Duduk, which is an Armenian instrument. I had to look that up because, you know, what, what is the Duduk? Who knows about these things? You know, what, why would a Jerry Goldsmith in, in America know something about that? You know, it's it's so unusual. And yet he used it and it fitted really, really well. If you haven't seen The Russia House, it's a very, very good film and a very underrated film. Never seen it. It's Sean Connery, if memory serves. It is, yeah. Fred Schwepsey, director. And, um, oh, what's his name? The director, the, um, he did The Devils and... Um, Ken Russell. Ken Russell in it, and he's fantastic in it. Ken Russell is in the film. Ken Russell is in the film, yes. Well, he then. is one of the because uh, it's all about um, you know spies and everything like that. He's he's one of the uh, should we say the British establishment who uh, who tried to recruit Sean Connery to help them, you know. And it's also got one of my all-time favourite actors, Roy Scheider. And and it's also got one of the most gorgeous uh, women ever in uh, the history. Oh yes, yeah. oh. <laughs> I'm in love. <laughs> so let's talk about the other two films then from 1990. Yes. The first of which, chronologically, is the one I've got the most to say about, Total Recall. But I'll let you guys go first, go on. 
Oh. Well, Total Recall, if you listen to it and you listen to Explorers um, close together, they have got a similar sound to it in some places. Yeah. But uh, it's great that, that the first, you know, The Dream is one of the great single tracks. If we were just doing single tracks, I think The, the Dream would be in my top five easy. Well, I, I'm going to go for Clever Girl. Oh, okay, yes. Because That's track, yeah. that track for me features not only my favourite bit of Jerry Goldsmith music, but one of my favourite pieces of music in any film score ever. It's the bit where, doing that track, and obviously much of Clever Girl is pretty much a, a, it's a chase scene, isn't it? It's where Richter is chasing Quaid, and, and all of Richter's goons are trying to kill him. And then you've got the bit where Quaid rounds a corner and goes up a crowded escalator, and then basically you have one of the most insane scenes of carnage and violence I've ever seen in a film. Typical of a Paul Verhoeven film. But it's the way that Jerry Goldsmith's music peaks to a crescendo during that bit on the escalator, and it's almost as if the music is celebrating the insane violence, which, yeah, you could argue it shouldn't really be doing that, but at the same time, surely that's the purpose of the music here. just absolute perfection and, and going back to earlier on in the score when you know the, the, the first opening cue is, is very much it was, it was a purposeful homage by Goldsmith to Basil Polidurus's score for Conan the Barbarian from 1982 again one of the greatest film scores of all time and you know Polidurus is, is, a, is one of those composers that just doesn't get the credit he, he deserves but was just absolutely fantastic but yeah Total Recall is for me hands down one of my favorite Jerry Goldsmith scores it's probably the, the score of his I've listened to the most maybe alongside one other which we'll come to later but yeah it is just a fantastic score yeah I bought the CD twice believe it or not <laughs> just because I wanted all the score in one one hit yeah it does complement the movie so well yeah I think Goldsmith with with Verhoeven they work really well together and what they wanted to achieve out of this I probably let himself to let loose but there's just little pieces of, of when you're on Mars and that and you get these little chimes going on and you know even with the dream and that it just chunks away lovely and it's again if you want to listen to a score without a movie this is one of the best ones to listen to fully agree mm. Mm -hmm. absolutely moving on then to the other score he did from 1990 and sorry to do this guys but this is the only Jerry Goldsmith score that I've really struggled with in prep for this episode <sighs> Sorry, Steve. I know it's a Joe Dante film. I know we've sung the praises of Gremlins 2 on our Joe Dante episode. But listening to it in isolation, this really just got on my nerves. My jaw is actually on the floor. It got, I it got it on my nerves. It, <laughs> ah, it didn't I have, love it. It didn't have anywhere near as much of the Gremlins theme from the original film as, as I thought it should have. It just grated on me. I don't know, maybe if I wasn't in the best of frames of mind when I listened to it that day. It, yeah, maybe, because I was toiling out in the garden in the baking heat, but it just bugged me and I had to skip through it. 
you know, when I uh, when this was uh, first came out, you know, when I was living in uh, Merthyr, we only had one cinema with two screens. So and I used to go to the cinema once or twice a week. And inevitably, some films were there for a long, long time. And I saw Gremlins 2 eight times wow. in, in the cinema. Right? Partly because there was nothing else there. And anyway, I saw Total Recall three times in the cinema. The music, I, I just, I bought the CD. I, I had the... Um, the mags, I had everything for Gremlins 2. I, I, don't get me wrong, I like the music when I'm watching the film. But I'm not thinking, oh, this is great music, I'm just going along with the film. But listening to the music in isolation just didn't do it for me. Some some movies just don't do it though, unfortunately. Yeah. As much as like, if, if, I think if it's a favourite, if it's a favourite movie of yours, it works. Yeah. So in Steve's case, yeah. I, I mean, actually I rated highly higher than the first um, Gremlins. You see, I'm not keen, maybe you're wrong to say this, but I'm not really keen on Gremlins 2. I mean, I love the idea of it. We get to see more Gremlins and that and the comedy side of it, but it's not a patch on the original. I, I agree. I fully agree. It's just, it's probably the most Joe Dante film ever, is all. Mm. That's why I like yeah. it so much. Right, guys, 1992, Basic Instinct. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah, yeah uh, it's awesome. Basic Instinct is Paul Verhoeven, for me, doing a Hitchcock. There's elements of that score which remind me of Vertigo, of certain elements of Psycho. It, it is a fantastic score and, and really it elevates the film. I, I'm a little bit sort of, I don't know where I stand on Basic Instinct. I've always loved the film, but there's a part of me thinking, is it really that good or is it just sort of trashy and pulpy? In which case, I think then it, it perfectly serves its purpose. But there's one thing that I've got no doubt about, Jerry Goldsmith's score for that film is just fantastic. Mm. I can see it why you can't be trashy and um, and still excellent. It's very, it's very sleazy. So sleazy, yeah. yeah. That, kind yeah. of in, in the way that a lot of Brian De Palma's films are. A lot of his films don't always work for me. Films like Dress to Kill, that it, it doesn't work for me. Um, and that's sort of very trashy and sleazy. But Basic Instinct, it it, it does. And, and Sharon Stone is fantastic. And it, it, it's just, you know, it's got some kind of elements which haven't really aged well. But the score is just phenomenal i know that jerry goldsmith said that uh, for the what he called the steamy scene it took him five days to write the music for that one scene he says that that is one of his most challenging scores to do there's never a thriller like it though all the thrillers from the 90s they, yeah they were all very basic scores but where yeah. this is just completely different and one of a kind it is very and it's a very classy score as well so that's 1992 1993 there's another joe dante jerry goldsmith collaboration steve i'll hand over to you well, I don't have to say anything, do I? I mean, this is such a nice score. I, I know that sounds not nice. Is a terrible, it's a terrible word to use it, it when you're describing yeah. something, but it it does. I, it is. I know what you yeah, mean. Yeah, it, it fits the film perfectly, um, and it's it's such a light film. It's such a film about its nostalgia. It's about the love of the movies. This score by um, Goldsmiths. I have to say, it's not one of my favourite ones of his of um, Dante Together. And yet I have listened to it a lot in the last couple of weeks. So then you've got 1996 is one that stands out for me. Um, and I'm sure, I'm, I'm sure it will for you as well, guys. Another Star Trek film. And this time is Star Trek First Contact. The favourite of mine of the uh, Next Generation films. I'm not going to go into the whys and what fours. I, I've written quite a lengthy article on Film 89 defending Star Trek Generations. One thing I will say about Star Trek Generations and... This might come as a bit of a shock to a lot of people, but that film score is possibly my all-time favourite film score, bar none. It's probably the film score I've listened to the most, maybe alongside Howard Shaw's The Lord of the Rings film scores, mm. but it is certainly up there in my top five film scores of all time. 
But taking that away, because that's not a Jerry Goldsmith score, that was Dennis McCarthy. Star Trek First Contact is definitely, for me, one of Jerry Goldsmith's best scores. It is phenomenal. Red alert. All hands to battle stations. Engage. Transporter room three, beam the defiant survivors aboard. Captain, the Admiral's ship has been destroyed. What is the status of the Borg cube? It has sustained heavy damage to its outer hull. I am reading fluctuations in their power grid. On screen. Number one, open a channel to the fleet. The channel opens, sir. This is Captain Picard of the Enterprise. I'm taking command of the fleet. Target all of your weapons onto the following coordinates. Fire at my command, sir. The coordinates you have indicated do not appear to be a vital system. Trust me, Data. The fleet's responded, sir. They're standing by. The red alert part of the score, where where they come out of warp into the into the battle with the with the with the Borg and the cube and everything else, and then what I like about it is he brings the Klingon theme into that as well because obviously yeah, got, the Klingon got, what, theme that he did again, this is him calling back to himself, calling back to a previous yeah. score from the motion picture. It's perfect. Uh, Worf wants to. He's he's commanding the Reliant from Deep Space Nine. He wants to think this is a good day to die. <laughs> yeah, Klingons do, and he wants to ram it in there. And it's just an awesome piece of music. That, that just that one track alone is is enough for that. It is. It is. Yeah. Uh, what have we got next, guys? Do you want to talk about LA Confidential? Oh God, sure do, do, do I want to talk about LA Confidential? Uh, Steve and I and Bill Scarry, we did in our Chinatown episode. We did our all-time favorite film noirs, and LA Confidential was my number one. And his score, much like his score for Chinatown, they they're almost inseparable. They're so similar, but at the same time slightly different. Even though they, you know, both films are from roughly the same period of time historically, there's something a little bit more modern in the sensibility of Jerry Goldsmith's music for Ali Confidential. But it is an outstanding score. Maybe not as I don't think it's for me as bedded in yet, and it's as iconic as his score for Chinatown. But there's very little between the two. I haven't actually listened to this score. It's one I didn't get the chance to listen to. I haven't seen the film in a long time, but I had a little quick snip on YouTube, but it did remind me back, and I think think it warrants warrants a chat. And again, it's another one of the one of a kind scores for Jerry. 
Yeah. We know there's a lot of them do blend into each other and we could be repeating ourselves. But again, this one again stands out again as, as a, on its own with about five or six other films. How about, well, we could skip Star Trek Insurrection if you want. I think The Mummy for me stands out. But Star Trek Insurrection? It is a very good score. Aside from what you may think about the film. Yeah. Another really good Jerry Goldsmith score. I mean, every score he's done, obviously, I think everyone, we praise every, every every score he's done for Star Trek. And they've got, he keeps bringing those themes back to use. He does, he does. There's so much reuse of themes, but not in a bad way. No, exactly. but he tweaks them as well at the same time. He so does, we're not going to yeah. get, we, he's not going to be lazy with it and say, oh, here we are, bang in, we're gonna, he'll change them and they'll tweak them. They all sound a little bit different yeah. to go with the blend of the film. But, uh, but sorry, go on in, Steve, you were going to say about The Mummy. The Mummy, yes. I, I loved the movie. And when I first saw it and you got the Imhotep theme at the beginning and you, you're you in Egypt, you're in that era. Jerry Goldsmith does what he does best. And he plants you and you're sitting on the desert there or in the sand among everything that's going on. And I think The Mummy's... I like The Mummy as, as a film goes. And I don't think it's been given enough praise. Brendan Fraser, I don't know so much about him, to be honest, and the other Mummy movies. But I got a soft spot for this film. Yeah, is it? Well, it's better than Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll give you that. We've already mentioned about um, this uh, sense of place that um, Goldsmith has. Yeah. And I think that you really do feel like you are in ancient Egypt, don't you? Yeah, it is It is an epic score. And I've listened to it in its entirety in prep for this episode. And again, no complaints, really good score. One that I didn't listen to that I should have because I'm a massive Paul Verhoeven fan is Hollow Man from 2000. I like Hollow Man. I really do. It's a good film. You know, I, I understand it's, it's detractors and it's critics, but the score, from what I remember, and again, I haven't listened to in prep for this episode, mm. again, perfectly fits the vibe and the feel of the film, which again is a bit of a, you know, Kevin Bacon's character is so, he's a scumbag, isn't he? You know, he's a guy that lets power get to his head. Goldsmith conveys that perfectly in another score that does his job. Yeah, I think this film is, it does, does get a bit of a poor rep anyway, but I, I think it's a great movie. Love it. And you know, it, it, we're getting to the point now that, you know, Jerry Goldsmith, his career was kind of winding down. Unfortunately, he died of cancer um, age 75 in, was it 2004? <clears throat> I think so, yeah. And for me, his last great score was his score for Star Trek Nemesis, which, mm. you know, perfect, uh, you know, is, is another Star Trek score. But And, and again, you know, I, I know Star Trek Nemesis is not going to be deemed one of the the best Star Trek films, but I personally do like it. I like all of the next generation films, you know, to varying degrees, but his score for Nemesis does his job perfectly. Just listening to that last track of the album really got to me. So I was thinking, this is the last time we'll hear him doing Star Trek. Yes, it is. Because, you know, unfortunately his last full legitimate score for a film was Looney Tunes Back in Action from 2003, which I did skip through for about three or four minutes earlier today, Mm. but that's not something I ever want to listen to. Oh, come on. <laughs> Star Trek Nemesis is his swan song. Yeah, it is. I think so. Now, for and... me, it's, uh, it is Looney Tunes because I know it's got a bad reputation because there's so much of studio infra- interference in it. But, you know, it is it's still Joe Dante and there are still moments of inspired wackiness that I love in it. So then, guys, are there any more that we want to discuss before we go on to our favourite Jerry Goldsmith scores? No, we'll wait till we talk. Yeah, we'll wait till we talk about our top five. Stephen, if you want to go first, I've had to drop. A, it's, it's not easy to do a top five, so we could come and go with this top five, as you, as you well know. And I've listened to you for, for for many times now, where you try and put a top five together, and they can change from week to week or from month to month. Anyway. Oh yeah, certainly. When I watched a documentary on Jerry Goldsmith, 
The bulk of the documentary was the background to the making or to scoring the film The River Wild. I haven't seen that for years and I've forgotten the score, but I fell in love with it again. And Gail's theme with the horn section, it's just it's a genius track. And I, I'm a bit soppy sometimes with some of the scores, but I just think it's gorgeous, gorgeous piece of music. And I've recently, luckily enough, it was an ITV2 recently and I've recorded it. So I sat and watched that movie and it's a, it's a really good, uh, well worth a watch if you've not seen it. It just comes across so well. And, and actually watching that documentary, see how you put it together and uh, it's fantastic, you know. That's a great documentary that was. Mm. Um, my number five, um, I'm not going to say much about it because we've already discussed their length, but it's Chinatown. And again, like you say, Stephen, you know, creating a list like this is no easy feat but i'm fairly happy that my number five is not going to be pushing out the four films about it um, i love the score for chinatown but i've just not listened to it anywhere near the same you know to the same degree that i've listened to the other four scores on my list my number five is a bit of a shock to me because it's a film that was released in 1992 i saw the film in the cinema haven't thought of it since it made no impact on me whatsoever. I only saw it because of the director. And I only started listening to it because of this podcast. And I loved it. And as Medicine Man, you know, yes, the director was uh, the once great John McTiernan. Um, I love the opening melody, which has got a, like a cool South American feel to it. But I think the score really kicks off when you get the love scene theme, mm. yeah. which is incredibly stirring. There's a moment in the film when Lorraine Brocco, is, who stars with um, Sean Connery, who apparently was really, really difficult in the film, but she's at the she climbs to the top of the canopy of the rain, Amazon rainforest and the camera sweeps around her and you see the the true beauty of this you know magnificent place and the music just wonderful it reminded me of out of african places not because of the melody or anything but because of the vast romanticism about it i'm i'm so glad that we've done this podcast just to hear that um, theme again it's, i've been listening to a lot the last week or two okay stephen what's your number 4 so this one here is probably down to you two guys. I've not even seen the film yet and it's on the post. It's on its way. It's been posted. But listen to the music for Matinee, even though I've not seen the film, I really enjoyed it. And it was typical Goldsmith as well, really. That first couple of tracks just paints a picture that, you know, I can't wait to watch this movie. I really, I really want to see it. It does. And when you see the film, Stephen, you'll, you'll, you'll see what Steve and I have been going on about the fact it's very similar to his score for the Burbs um, in a mm-hmm. lot of respects, but it's also very much a film that is celebrating like the 50s and 60s Americana. It's just one of these white picket fence sort of, I don't know, feel good sort of film scores is the best way I can describe it. Yeah, I know I use the word nice and that sounds demeaning, but <laughs> it, it is a really, really nice film. It is, it is. So my number four? We've spoken about it. It's Alien. I, I couldn't, in, in all good conscience, do a, a, a list of my favourite Goldsmith scores without putting Alien on it. It's not the one that I would grab off, off the shelf to listen to every day of the week, because I think you've got to be in the right mood for it. But as soon as I put it on, it just gets its teeth into me. As I've said earlier, it it just perfectly matches what Ridley Scott was trying to do. It's this perfect blend of mm. ethereal science fiction and just pure terror. Oh, absolutely, yeah. It's a yeah. fantastic Steve, what's your number four? Uh, my number four is another film we've discussed already, and that's The Planet of the Apes, going all the way back to the 1968. Um, as we said, I mean, it's it, some of the pieces in it. The, the Search is, as I said, one of the great... You, when you listen to that piece of music, it makes you thirsty, and yeah. it's completely disorientating. It's sparse, and we've already discussed it, but it, it's tremendous. Agreed, agreed. Stephen, what's your number three? 
Okay, I've gone for The Omen. It's one of my favourite all-time movies, and the score is definitely, again, one of a kind. I was just thinking about the scene from the Safari Park, which I've actually been there as a kid, and again, yes, the baboon did rip my dad's car apart to a certain degree. But the idea of having the love theme at the beginning and then bringing in this terrifying situation of, of the animals turning on, on Damien in the car, it's just a wonderful piece of music. I love it. It's It's got, the obviously, the vocals as well. It elevates elevates that part of the film. You, you can see the, the way that how terrified that they are in, in, sitting in that car with all them animals attacking, trying to attack them. You know, it's, it's brilliant. Okay, my number three is a film that we've already discussed and a score we've already discussed, but it's Star Trek First Contact. I'm not going to say too much more about the score other than probably a justification as to why I'm putting this on you above Star Trek Motion Picture. And it's simply because Star Trek First Contact is a film that I, I prefer much more to the motion pictures, a film I've seen far more times. Therefore, it's a score that I've listened to a lot more. And when I listen to the score, I'm, I'm seeing the stuff. Basically, the film is playing in my head. But there's, I think there's just a lot more variety to a score for First Contact. There's that track called Fully Functional where uh, the Borg Queen is, is trying to seduce Data and it's just mm. so trying to describe that it's just again ethereal sort of like magical but seductive there's far more variation in tone in his score for first contact and i think it's it's probably one of jay goldsmith's most all-encompassing scores where he he kind of goes everywhere but it's it, it's all still within the realms of action horror science fiction it's just a fantastic score and alongside my pick at number two is probably the jerry goldsmith score i've listened to the most that's understandable i mean it's a, I, I i do love the score and i I get exactly what you're, you're, you're coming from on, on this. The, the idea of how the, the theme itself for, for First Contact and then you got the theme at the end for the uh, visitation of the Vulcans and that. Again, me being sobby, that could put a tear in your eye, that can. It can, yeah. I, I don't care what anyone says, men cry. And I've done it many times in movies. It's a very good score and I, I do love it. This isn't in my top five, but I do, it is up there. I mean, again, I've listened to this many times myself, so, but I do get where you're coming from. Yeah. You don't have to apologise for um, crying in movies, uh, Steve. You know, <laughs> the last podcast I did was um, Field of Dreams, and I'm a blubbering wreck at the end of that every <laughs> single time. I need to watch that again, actually. I've got it on my list to do, so um, yeah, I need to see that. So, Steve, what's your number three? Well, you know, I was thinking, what's the most talked about films we've had in podcasts and articles on Film 89? And I think it's two of them. The first one is First Blood, and the second one is my choice of number three, and that's The Burbs. Yes. I think we've probably mentioned it more than just about any other films in our time as Film 89. You know, there's nothing much I can add to it because we've we talk mm. about it so many times. But yeah, that that is my number three. Okay, Stephen, what's your number two? So it's already been mentioned, but it's got to be Planet of the Apes. And you actually, um, Scott, you mentioned it earlier. The, the track, The Hunt, is where we see the, the apes on the, on riding for the first time when the, you've got the, the cornfield there and everyone's, you can hear these horns and they're all frightened, you don't know why. And this massive carnage of, of, of people running around trying to escape them. And it's it's, fan, it's a fantastic scene. That I, it's one of my favourite scenes. Obviously, the kind of the movie is brilliant and, and, and there's some other pieces as well. But I just, that scene for that five minutes, I think it's one of the best bits of, of Skullby scores that I've, I've listened to. Agreed, yeah, agreed. My number two is, and there's not much more I can say about it, is Total Recall. It was vying for the top spot, and it nearly got it. And I think when I when I first the first draft of this list I did, Total Recall was number one. Mm. But when I listened to the score that's in the number one spot, it just edged it out. But again, these two are interchangeable. Tomorrow, Total Recall could be at number one, but at the moment, it's my number two score. 
Yeah, my number two is another one we've discussed extensively tonight. You know, it's lyrical and scary. It's alien. Mm-hmm. It's beautiful. It is. It is. So, Stephen, what is your number one? Well, I've left out a lot of films, but I'm going to go true to my heart with this. And I'm going to say Star Trek The Motion Picture. Thank God because... you did. Thank God you did. <laughs> <laughs> I saw this at the cinema, picked up the score, went home. Oh, actually, went to my mates first. I let him record it onto tape before I took it home. And it's the original album is worn out. It is, it's very thin now. So obviously, the, one of the p- best parts of this is the is the Enterprise uh, music. When we get to obviously see Kurt go around and, in, the, in the shuttle and everything else. And there's nothing else like it. I played the whole two albums I've got on vinyl, which is the La La Land's version of it. There are many. I've, there's many more. And I've also got three CD coming from L.A. at the moment for this movie as well. That's how much. I adore this picture. Yeah. It, it's ingrained in me. It lifts a smile on my face. I don't need to watch the film. I can listen to the score, shut my eyes, and I'm there for all the way. Not a bit missed of the film. I'm just loving it. Yeah, you'll get no argument from me. Amazing score. My number one, I've already said you know, as much as I can say about it, but the one additional thing I will say is every time I hear the end credits music from The Burbs I just, you, you talk Steve about films bringing you to tears, this this one mm. is, is for me, that one track, even though the rest of the score I also love, but that one track is just tears of joy for me, it is just the most uplifting piece of music I think Goldsmith has ever done and much like the film, it just makes me feel good, it's the best way I can describe it it's just beautiful. And that's for every reason that could be number one, I, I've got no qualms with what you want to put there and for that reason, it's well worth it. Yeah. Steve, what's your number one? Well, my number one is also another Joe Dante, and that's uh, Explorers. Yeah. I don't know what it's about this film, but it stayed with me ever since I first saw it. Uh, construction is one of my favourite pieces of all time. Like the boobs, you know, it's incredibly entertaining. It's classic strings and classic orchestra with electronic combines to the greatest effect. Um, it captures small town suburbia alongside, you know, these huge dreams of space travel and there's some other highlights like uh, she likes me which is uh, a romantic but futuristic and first flight which is really really stirring and uh, to me the effect of the album is odd because it combines this otherworldliness with the down-to-earth quality that captures kids dreams you know yeah. it's, it's it's wonderful it's one of my favorite albums of all time Awesome. So we put a tweet out to social media and we had an absolutely huge response. And I have to say now, uh, given the fact we're over two hours of unedited recording time, I'm probably not going to have enough time to read them all out. But we'll start with, uh, before we go to our listeners, we'll start with uh, the team. Neil Gaskin has picked number five. The man from Uncle Theme, he says, it's a bit of a cheat for me as it's easy to pick uh, one tune and a theme tune at that, but I truly miss the big event themes for TV shows, and this is a classic example of one. Mm. Number four, he's got Planet of the Apes. From its slow, methodical opening to its unnerving crash landing piece, the score immediately feels or creates a feeling of insecurity and uncertainty. The chords and melodies played all seem familiar and yet somehow out of place, keeping with this strange new, in inverted commas, planet we find ourselves on. He says of the track The Hunt that you mentioned, Stephen, that track Mm. inspires the terror felt by the human protagonist. It almost seems hopeless to resist the ape predators you can almost feel the strength and fury rushing towards the prey 
Number three, he's picked Star Trek The Motion Picture to take on a project that is already associated with its own long-standing theme and then completely make it your own tells you everything you need to know about Jerry Goldsmith. The main opening that would later go on to be the Star Trek The Next Generation theme tune is nothing short of iconic and of course, as much as we were treated to a 45-minute tracking shot of the all-new Enterprise, we also got <laughs> Goldsmith's beautiful accompaniment to hold our utter awe and reverence alongside James T. Kirk's mutual admiration for the vessel. And number two, and surprising for anyone who knows Neil, is First Blood. The title track First Blood gives both a complete capture of the character, his pain and anguish, and the endurance of the ensuing adventure ahead, while still managing to convey the sense of sadness attached to it. The tunnel theme could actually be lifted from an old horror score and encapsulates the complete terror of the claustrophobic elements attached to it. However, the piping of the regimental trumpets seemingly provide both the character and viewer with a reassurance not to give up hope. And of the track Hanging On, he says very similar in motifs to Total Recalls, the big jump in its almost breakneck intensity it never fails to get my pulse racing and speaking of total recall that's his number one a heady mix from its opening titles the adrenaline pumped action piece the dream mixed with the sci-fi mystery of the mutant and of course mm. clever girl and the big jump which in my opinion are the greatest action scene accompaniments ever written fully agree Neil a great score lures the viewer even deeper inside what they are seeing and these two tracks almost make me feel out of breath as I get dragged into the relentless pursuit of Quaid beautifully put Neil our very own Richie Roberts has got number five the burbs number four poltergeist number three alien number two first blood and number one star trek the motion picture his honorable mentions are the omen planet of the apes and total recall john armenio who was on last episode with steve he is on twitter at quasar sniffer he's picked star trek the motion picture alien first blood omen and the secret of nim that is in no particular order he says that star trek theme makes my cold desiccated heart swell with optimism <laughs> another previous guest on film 89 and a great friend of the podcast Tony Stella. You'll find him on Twitter at Studio T Stella. He's picked Chinatown, Alien, Planet of the Apes, and Rambo. Another member of the Film 89 team, Stephen Saunders. You'll find him on Twitter at that SJ Saunders. Has picked number five, Chinatown, number four, Alien, number three, Gremlins, number two, Star Trek, the motion picture. And you're going to like this one, Steve. Number one, The Explorers. Gives me <laughs> chills. And going out to our listeners, uh, Michael Eddy is on Twitter at MichaelEddy6. He's picked The Wind and the Lion, The Edge, Capricorn One, The Boys from Brazil, and Under Fire. Another one of our favourite listeners is Alexandra Daniels. You'll find her on Twitter at FilmVinyl. She is picked in no particular order. The Omen, The Secret of Nim, Alien, Psycho 2, yes, and Star Trek, <laughs> The Motion Picture. David DC at DC underscore David has picked The Omen movie soundtracks. Seconds, the John Frankenheimer film. Capricorn 1, Alien, The Satan Bug. Then you've got Carlton, who's on Twitter at Bouncing the 500. Has picked The Omen, Star Trek The Motion Picture, Twilight Zone The Movie, Gremlins and Basic Instinct. Then you've got Alexander Schiebel, who is at Xander Scores on Twitter. He's picked The Wind and the Lion, Shadow, Lionheart, Gremlins 2, Rudy and about 30 others. Sule who is at Sule1, has picked Outland, Alien, The Omen, The Blue Max, and Planet of the Apes. So again, a really good mix here of scores. Sander Jansen on Twitter, who is at Goggles Guy, has picked Basic Instinct, Star Trek Insurrection, Star Trek The Motion Picture, Star Trek V, The Final <laughs> Frontier, and Chinatown. <laughs> Where's our Star Trek The Motion Picture then? Come on. Zen Folks on Twitter, at Dr. Zen. Number five, Baby, Secret of the Lost Legend, just because no one else will pick it, and I think you're right there, mate. Number four, Arman Flint. Number three, Star Trek The Motion Picture. Number two, Mulan. Number one, The Boys from Brazil. He says, I put this first because it is most overlooked. 
TC Rastani, who's on Twitter at After Hours TC, has picked Air Force One, Gremlins, First Blood, Star Trek The Motion Picture, and Pattern. Nick Michalak, Ravens Film Productions, who is on Twitter at Ravens Films, has picked Star Trek The Motion Picture, First Blood, Alien, Total Recall, and Gremlins. Andrew Scott Mayer, who is at ZenLogic101, he's picked number five, Alien, four, The Sand Pebbles, three, Plant of the Apes, two, Star Trek The Motion Picture, and number one, The Omen. And last but not least, you've got Score Cues at Movie Scores, has picked number five, Total Recall, Number four, Medicine Man. Number three, Rambo, First Blood Part Two. Number two, Hoosiers. And number one, Star Trek, the motion picture. He says, listing only five leaves out too many. So many great scores by Jerry. Thank you guys and girls for all of those lists you sent in to us. I do apologize the fact I've not read them all out, but we are way over two hours here now. And uh, this episode will just go on all night otherwise. But thank you very much for your input. It is much appreciated as always. But before we go, guys, we've got one listener question, which I think is quite timely given the situation we all find ourselves in. The question is from Stephen Fisher via email, and he says, I've been in lockdown for three weeks, and in these troubling times, I've found myself gravitating towards comfort food comedies from my childhood, such as Airplane, Caddyshack, Ghostbusters, and the like. What kind of stuff have you guys been watching during your isolation? So guys, uh, Steve, start with you. I haven't been in isolation. Uh, I've been one of the lucky ones, so I've been out working as a key worker for our company. So movies have been a bit few and far between at the moment but i have sort of been watching sort of popcorn movies so for example then many black international and these probably not the best movies in the world but hey ho so many black international fantasy island uh, jumanji 2 comes to mind as well i've watched recently i have watched a few that have been involved with jerry goldsmith but you know i wish i had time to watch more to be honest i've not had, had the um, opportunity to do so at the moment steve what are you uh, well, I've been watching quite a bit of uh, some um, film noir, and one which really stood out was um, The Crimson Kimono, which is directed by Sam Fuller. One of the actors in it is um, James Shigeta. I'm sure you know that name. From Die Hard, yeah. From Die Hard. He's a yeah. very <clears throat> young man in this film, he was. It's a bit of a romance. It starts off as a typical film noir, but then it turns halfway through as a, uh, like an interracial romance, which, considering it was 1959, it was quite bold. The other film, which I would highly recommend, and this is not a easy watch is The Handmaiden which I had never seen before and that's uh, Park Chan-wook's yeah. uh, film uh, from 2016 I managed to get my hands on two versions the theatrical version and the director's cut which is a longer version and I chose the theatrical version just because even that was two and a half hours. And it was fantastic. There's so many twists and turns in it. I was riveted. So now I can't wait to find the time to watch the longer version as well, because I, I could have put it on directly after the um, the, the theatrical version because it was that good. Fantastic movie. Anything else, Steve? I've been catching up on TV series. Um, the new series of Bosch is on Amazon Prime, which I'm a big fan of that. This is series six now. You know, if you like a good... Um, old-fashioned cop drama i would highly recommend that well given the fact that everyone's on edge everyone's nervous and you know these are not good times i've actually found myself gravitating towards horror (laughs) don't know why but i've just been binging on horror films that i've seen years ago decades ago in fact and re-watching them and and actually watching a load of older horror films that i've never seen and, and some of which i 
again saw when I was very young. Just looking at the list of, of, of films which I've re-watched or watched for the first time on IMDb, you've got Creepshow 2, Dr. Terror's House of Horrors, I've watched a lot of ha- of Hammer Horror, mm. um, James Wills, The Old Dark House, Life Force, Toby Hooper, that's one of your favourites, Steve. Yes, yeah, uh, that's, that's what it is. The, the Curse of Frankenstein, What We Do in the Shadows, which is more of a comedy, but I'd never seen that before. Taika Waititi's film, absolutely fantastic. Um, I've watched some William Castle. I've gone back and rewatched some old Hitchcock. I've rewatched The 39 Steps. Um, I've watched some trashy sci fi. I've watched Roger Coleman's Battle Beyond the Stars. You're really going old school. Yeah, a lot of horror. Lords of Chaos, the, the film about Norwegian thrash metal. Uh, I've watched Horror Express, which is another Hammer film. Mm, Re- that's a good one, yeah. Rewatched the original Japanese Ring. Again, like I said earlier, I've watched some Dario Argento. I've rewatched Bird of the Crystal Plumage, uh, Profundo Root Rosso. I've watched for the first time The Burning, which is a slash. Oh, of, mate, that's yeah. wicked. Yeah, never seen the film. I, I thought, have I ever seen The Burning? I thought I had, but I haven't actually seen it. One of the most pleasant surprises was uh, George Romero's Season of the Witch, which isn't really a horror film. That's um, really, really good. It, it is a really good film, yeah. and far better than his next film, The Crazies, a film which I saw when I was younger and, and loved, but re-watching it just didn't do it for me. Oh, I, I did actually watch it, funny enough. I forgot about that, yeah. And then I, I've mixed it up, Ben, with some stuff like The Spy Who Came In From The Cold, which I'd never seen. A fantastic performance from Richard Burton. Finally watched Hunt for the Wilder People. Again. That's great. Yeah, really good film. And oh, Requiem for a Dream. It's 20 years old. It was on my list of films I'd never seen. And oh my God, that film just... That's a hard watch. It is a hard watch. It is. <laughs> Almost towards the end, when it's getting really, really sort of bleak and, and bad, I actually snapped out of it and thought, do you know what? This is not me, fortunately. This is not anyone close to me. And I was just washed over with a sense of relief. Absolutely fantastic film. So yeah, um, Stephen Fisher, great question. Um, for whatever reason, I've been gravitating towards horror and, and things like that. Well, if I can ask you a question, Sky, how long have you been in isolation to watch all that? Well, I haven't been because, like, I'm also a key worker, but I've just, oh. I, I'm just watching a lot of it on my tablet, to be honest with you. Are you are you working from home, then, Sky? Or no, no, you no, no, no. Out? I'm actually full time in work, doing about about sixty hours a week as well. I doff you my hat to you because I I haven't had time to watch all that, and I'm at home all the time, working from home. Right, so before we wrap things up, we've got a little promotion, uh, courtesy of Stephen. For the next month, listeners to Film 89 will be able to get 10% off all purchases from SiloWave.com. Steve, do you want to tell us a bit about SiloWave? I first come across SiloWave, it was actually on the Facebook page, because I always buy my vinyl from the States. Some of the vinyl comes with an import tax, but when I got to know Ian, and I do speak to him regularly on Facebook, he gets a lot of the Waxworks copies. So, Mm -hmm. for example, Sorcerer. Yeah, which you're well aware of. Um, he picks those up and gets An them incredible cover up by our friend Tony Stella. It is, isn't it? I, I, I just, just stare at that vinyl when I look at it. It's awesome. And yeah, so Ian does get a lot of uh, soundtracks. He does have a lot of alternative music as well. Some of it can be synth and stuff. If you check out the website and check out, there's a stack of it there. So please uh, go on to www.silowave.com. That's P-S-I-L-O-W-A-V-E.com and enter the promo code FILM89 for 10% off all purchases. And that's valid for the next month. And also, um, I did promise uh, friends on the Facebook uh, Powerhouse Indicator group that I would plug their new podcast. It's not actually run by the label. It's purely run by the admin guys that run that Facebook page, whereby they cover whole gamut of releases by Powerhouse Indicator, which is one of my favorite boutique Blu-ray labels. Please check them out. It's a great podcast. It's early doors for them. But if you love that label, definitely worth checking out. And Steve, what about your book? 
Oh, of course, yes, yes. Mm. Uh, I just want to thank everybody who has supported so far. Lucy Forever, it's available on Amazon, on paperback and um, Kindle and Kindle Unlimited. If you pay, uh, subscribe to Kindle Unlimited, you can get it for free. It's sold really, really well so far. And this weekend, I'm getting my first ever royalties. So uh, we, <laughs> I know. Fantastic. So, Stephen, thank you for finally coming on Film 89. It's been an absolute pleasure. It's been uh, far too long in the waiting. Where can people um, hit you up on social media if they want to chat uh, film music, vinyl, or anything? So the best place is at Twitter anyway, at Steve007. I'm sure most of you probably see me out there, but yeah, anytime. I think Twitter's one of the best ways to communicate than, than anything else. It just works for me. My phone's always in my pocket, so I always like to... If I don't reply straight away, I could be doing nights, I could be working hard or whatever, but I always like to reply to anyone that's um, got a question or anything like that all right sorry i forgot to say the um, indicator podcast i was referring to is indicator cast and you can find them on itunes yeah indicator cast and steve where can people hit you up if they want to chat to you about anything uh again uh, facebook but twitter's the best um, it's at welsh bluesman on twitter and of course uh, if you want to read any of the articles um, i've written or listen to any other podcasts it's the great site it's film89.co.uk marvelous site by the way I've, I've been in there many times yeah obviously you can find us all at the site uh, you can find our writings on film and television there and you can find me on twitter and facebook at sky movies you can find all the gang at film 89 uk on twitter and facebook please guys and girls i know you're getting sick of hearing me saying it but please if you're enjoying the podcast like subscribe tell your friends about it but more importantly if you could leave us a positive review on apple podcasts we had a great result yesterday we are now number two in south korea which is just fantastic um there's a number of countries that we've actually topped the charts on so far uh, we're not there yet with south korea but it's just great to see the podcast going from strength to strength really is flattering and we're not blowing our own trumpets here we're just thanking you guys for making us far more popular than we thought we'd ever be so please if you could leave us an apple podcast review we would be great appreciative so i think that's it guys you know i know the output of the podcast hasn't been um like it was before this horrendous situation we found ourselves in but it has kind of hampered our ability to firstly go to the cinema to see new films to tell you about and then also to get together and record but we will be trying to um kick out episodes maybe on not as frequent a basis but hopefully the quality won't be dipping thank you everyone and it just remains for me to say as i usually do in fact i think i'll change it up this time just stay safe guys but if you can stay classy we're out of here.